0: I'm Drew. And I'm John. This episode and every future episode is dedicated to all the horror hounds and smokers out there who want to expand their knowledge of the genre and have a good time.
1: If you are a fan of the Friday the 13th series and haven't seen the fan films Never Hike Alone and Never Hike in the Snow, what the hell are you doing with your life? (laughs) You need to check them out now. They're readily available on YouTube and they're badass. Today we have the creator of those films with us, Vincent DeSanti. He's going to spill his guts to us in an exclusive interview. All that and more today on High on Horror. Interviews, reviews, and the latest news all rolled into one.
0: Now it's time for Screaming Room. And this week we're thrilled to announce Shudder has given us early access to Creep Show Season 3. So today we'll be talking about Episode 1, which airs this Thursday exclusively on Shudder. And the two segments, the first story was called Mums, and the second story is Queen Bee. Um, I did like Mums better overall as a story, but I feel like the cinematography of Queen Bee and the effects were a lot better, in my opinion.
1: I agree. I think that uh, episode one started off very strong with Mums. Um, It was uh, a story by Joe Hill, who I love as an author. I've mentioned him before. Um, uh, And uh, Ethan Embry is a great actor, and uh, that that and it it was a very dark and a good story and that was a very good start for uh that was a very good start for episode one a, a very good segment to start with at least and um there were there are little easter eggs in there if you look um there's a whiskey bottle that says Nathan Graham's whiskey and uh, Nathan Graham to you to those of you who don't know that's the uh, father from Father's Day the the corpse with the cake so that was pretty cool um yeah and I agree with you about Queen Bee um but tell me that the uh the 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 Queen Bee's debut. Tell me that that did not echo the thing.
0: It did. And I also, you talk about Easter eggs. Uh, was it, was it Haddon or was it Haddonfield Myers hospital? Yep,
1: Haddonfield Myers hospital. Yep. Uh,
0: yeah, very much felt like the thing. Um, I felt like, I mean, granted it's only an hour hour for the whole episode or 47 minutes yeah, around there. But, uh, I felt like the beginning of Queen B took a while to get going.
1: I was going to say that. I was going to say the thing about the first episode, about the first segment, rather, Mums, was that it kind of jumped right into it. You know, like, let's not give any spoilers, but you get right into it. And then with Queen with Queen Bee, I really, there was a, a scene in the beginning where it's really, really just the three leads just kind of talking for several minutes. And, yeah, I, I feel it took a while to get started.
0: And uh, with the first one, as I said when we were watching it, I felt like it was a mixture of Little Shop of Horrors mixed with Hellraiser.
1: And the music was very Carpenter as well. Um, did you notice like the dun, dun, dun? Definitely like a, a Thing slash Halloween vibe, especially like with the hospital like you mentioned, and then the Queen Bee looking like the Thing. I definitely see uh, this one was directed by Greg Nicotero, and I think this one was probably his, like, it appears to be his homage to the Thing.
0: Yeah, I, I mean it's an interesting take on it, and uh I mean they're they're breaking in to try to find uh a pop star they're obsessed with. And I as it plays out, I gotta say it, it it's gotta be how, how Taylor Swift stays in business and people still listen to her.
1: <laughs> Alright, you know what? With that we're done. Uh I think we're ready to smoke. Let's get into Strain Wreck. And now it's time for Strain Wreck the segment where John and I discuss which strain we're getting wrecked on in each episode. Today, we're smoking a hybrid called Gas Money. This stuff is sub-zero gushers on steroids. It is powerful. (laughs) If you aren't a frequent smoker, I don't see you finishing a blunt of this. You're putting it out at least halfway. Uh, Gas Money is a strong diesel strain that just gets you a complete high mind and body um john me and you uh we uh you and i actually played uh smoked this when we were playing Catan, and you kept zoning out
0: (laughs) it's the only reason i lost but uh i mean this bag's a lie it says gas money and it's showing that it's full but when i when i open it here it doesn't look full we've
1: been smoking
0: (laughs) but uh let me smell this that's what she said damn that is definitely a strong diesel it's fucking burning in my nostril there's no bit. fruit
1: to it there's no like there's no like uh juiciness it's just like gas
0: gas money taking over for the nine nine in the 2000
1: yeah so uh i'm definitely ready to smoke this so i'm gonna spark us up what's going on this week in horror history
0: this week in horror history so, uh, actually this week we got a lot of films celebrating anniversaries. Amityville 2, The Possession, the U.S. debut of Shaun of the Dead, Urban Legend, Martyrs, Jack Frost, Feast. But most importantly, this week we have the anniversary of the re-release of The Exorcist, the version you have never seen, and the instant classic by David Fincher, Seven. Uh...
1: I remember the first time that I made you watch Martyrs. I was so scared of what you were going to think
0: afterwards. (laughs) That movie was amazing. See, I I also feel like I had lower expectations because of just the shock movies you've had me watching. I wasn't expecting uh, such a deep story to it along those lines. But uh, Martyrs is an amazing movie.
1: It is. It's like a 10 out of 10. It's a masterpiece. Uh, Anyway, though, yeah, uh, uh, The Exorcist and Seven are absolute game changers. Uh, I always tell the story about how The Exorcist traumatized me, so let me tell you another story. Uh, Funny thing, years after uh, recovering and avoiding the movie, I was watching The Simpsons with my sister on Fox, and I remember they ran an Exorcist trailer for the version you've never seen before because it was coming to theaters, and it fucking showed the spider walk. Like in the commercial, and I almost fucking cried when I saw that. Had <laughs> <laughs> a sheer panic and terror. I legit almost tear it up. I mean, why would you show that on TV? That's just so messed up, man. Like, that was not cool.
0: Yeah, I have both versions on uh, on my Voodoo, but uh, yeah, I always stick with the version you've never seen, just because it has that. That shit's creepy as fuck. Oh, uh, yeah, and, uh, going to seven. Um, I actually hadn't seen that till two three years ago uh mostly because i am not a big when paltrow fan and my brad pitts meh okay to me but uh david fincher is amazing and that movie is so good um you i feel like though you kind of know what's in the box at the end
1: (laughs) yeah well um Real quick, uh, I want to go back to The exorc- Exorcist, because you said that uh, you always go to the version you've never seen before because of that extra footage, and uh, that's something that I was that I wanted to bring up. Um, I always used to think that the version you've never seen before was better than the theatrical version due to the extra footage and all, and uh, you know how like Captain Howdy keeps popping up in the corners of the screen and shit, and... Um, Yeah, uh, but I actually have flip-flopped back to liking the theatrical version more, the reason being, after watching it again recently, it's soulless and heartless, and it's dark as hell. It's cold, harsh, and unforgiving, and I remember the first time that I saw that film in its entirety that I felt dirty, and uh, I feel that... Uh, the re-release doesn't give off that vibe it's the exact opposite it's happy uplifting and hopeful and that was apparently what you know the late william peter peter bladdy's intent was um he wanted the film to be more positive so this was ultimately his version of the film uh both versions are good but i'm more affected by the grit and the grime that that theatrical version lays on you and uh Here's a little knowledge nugget. After seeing the re-edit of The Exorcist, director William Friedkin agreed that he thinks William Peter Blatty's version is the more complete version of the film and the better film. So, that's pretty crazy.
0: Yeah, i have to go back. I mean, the problem is The Exorcist is a, is a tough movie to watch, like, back-to-back to compare versions. Like, that's just... That's a little much of a It's task. an
1: undertaking. It's a total undertaking.
0: Oh, you gotta sit through The Exorcist twice? <laughs>
1: But uh, but yeah, um, to uh get get to uh seven, um, in in regards to seven, uh, it's one of the most ingenious thrillers ever made. It's right up there with The Silence of the Lambs because it's so fucking intelligent and well acted, and visceral. Uh, the ending. Uh, like like you said, you know, it's obvious we know what's going on. Um, the ending is always going to come up in any Seven conversation. <laughs> what's in the box? What's in the box? I, I mean, we have something special here, though. You know, Brad Pitt was at the top of his game, as was Morgan Freeman and Kevin Spacey. And David Fincher, the director, is no one-trick pony either. He direct, you know, he's a great director. He's got a nice resume on him with films like Fight Club and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Uh, but all of these guys came together and made history. That's a fact. They made history. If you were alive when Seven came out, That's all you heard about. It was like The Matrix. Everybody saw it, and everybody was talking about it. This, like The Exorcist, is a perfect film for me. I'm going to give them both a 10 out of 10. What do you rate them?
0: Uh... I don't, I feel like seven, you, you mentioned the matrix. It's, it's funny. Cause I never watched the matrix for a while. because so I just remember being in, being in school and everybody, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. And I, I would always, I don't know why I, I was always that guy who would try to, well, that's the popular stuff. I don't, I'm not interested in that. It. It's probably stupid, but I don't seven. I don't know if I give it a 10. I would give the exorcist a 10, um, yeah i'd say i'd say eight and a half nine for seven okay that's fair that's fair and uh but i will say of all these movies that i named off here the one with the best line has to be jack frost well it ain't fucking frosty
1: (laughs) that's another movie that's so bad it's good i love jack frost i don't care what what you want to say about it i love jack frost and
0: shannon elizabeth was in it (sighs) i mean i can't yeah i mean (laughs)
1: that doesn't hurt and that doesn't hurt anything one little bit
0: but uh, you were talking about Brad Pitt being at the top of his game. I feel like Brad Pitt, like I said, as an actor as a whole, is kind of meh. But there was just like a period from like 1999 to like 2004 or ish where he was just hitting on everything. And it was real good. And then it seems like he just kind of went back to like whatever.
1: I, I think I agree. You know, I, I, when he first started... Like Keanu Reeves, you can kind of tell that they were being played off of their good looks and, and their pretty, you know, their prettiness. And as it went on, as their careers went on, they started taking acting more seriously and modeling less seriously. And like you said, we got some good movies from Brad Pittman, Interview with the Vampire, uh, Legends of the Fall, uh, River Runs Through It. You know, yeah, like you said, he was at, he was at the top of his game for a good, a good period.
0: Underrated one, The Mexican.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, and, and, uh, James
0: Gandolfini, like, I, like, you know, I've been rewatching the Sopranos. He's fucking hilarious in the Mexican.
1: I don't remember. I'm going to have to rewatch it. I do remember liking the movie though.
0: Well, I think that'll about, uh, wrap up our history for us. And now we'll get on the Puff Puff Ask, the segment of the show where Drew and I answer questions that you send to us through Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at HighOnHorror420 and through email at HighOnHorror420 at gmail.com.
1: I'll start us off here with a question from a listener named David V. from New Mexico. He says, hey guys, you guys rock. My wife and I listen to your show every week. Thank you for combining weed and horror into one source. My wife, Victoria, and I want to know, who is your favorite horror actor and actress? Uh, well, thank you, David. That was a, a very good compliment. I appreciate that. Yes, thank you. Um, I, I would have to say, um, easy money, Bruce Campbell and Barbara Crampton. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> um if, if uh if we were doing a top 10 list or something there'd be vincent price on there cushing lee lenaia quigley cassandra peterson and more but if we're just doing our flat-out favorites bruce and barbara get my vote they're both incredible actors uh that stuck around the genre when they could have used their talents to do bigger things they bring respect to the horror film every horror film that they're in they bring respect to it uh put some respect on it <laughs> um let let their bodies of work speak for themselves and both are really kind people in real life as well
0: uh i mean bruce campbell is the easy answer um uh, i mean kurt russell i'm fucking i love kurt russell i'm pretty much anything anything he's in comedy sci-fi horror um jamie lee's a great pick that's also i feel like an easy pick to go with um barbara barbara like you said is a good choice uh one i don't think it gets mentioned usually a lot is heather langen camp oh yeah yeah That I, is great i feel like i feel like she doesn't get put on the same level that uh laurie strode does and i feel like she deserves it i mean she did multiple movies in the uh nightmare on elm street series and all the ones she's in are good i agree and and, and uh I don't know, I,
1: I'm going to give her the credit of saying it is her performance, but when she's in those movies, those movies are the best ones. Like Those movies are elevated. The first one, Dream Warriors, New Nightmare, those are the three, if I had to pick three of the series, that's the three.
0: And she doesn't have a uh, Halloween Resurrection on her on her credits for those uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movies. <laughs> she, she's not in the bad ones.
1: That's very true. That Yeah, I, I agree. Heather Langenkamp is a great choice.
0: Although, in fairness to Jamie, she's not in Halloween Resurrection that long.
1: <laughs> she definitely chose the right film to die in, that's for sure
0: but uh yeah those are two good i mean two good choices for me uh you read off like a hall of fame list of horror actors um i mean you got also throw in robert england
1: yeah of course of course
0: i think that should about cover it i mean i'm sure for sure we're forgetting people I'm
1: sure as soon as this episode's done wrapping, we're going to be like, damn, we could have mentioned this. Well,
0: I'll throw one more I just thought of. Donald Pleasance. There you go. (laughs) There you go. I would have felt, uh, dude, if we stopped recording and later, I would have been so mad. Be like, how the fuck did I forget Donald Pleasance?
1: Yeah, right. I mean, Carolyn Monroe. There you go. There's another uh, female actress, uh, Carolyn Monroe from uh, Maniac. You know, that's another one you could throw out there. She was in a couple of good films.
0: And uh, let's uh, move on here to our second question. Sent to us by Tom in Morgantown, Ohio. What's your favorite subgenre of horror and what films are your favorite from that category? Uh, this is this is easy for me. It's it's slasher. I know it's not the most intellectually deep subgenre in uh, horror, but I mean, who doesn't just love watching a body count movie? And uh yeah, let me name some movies. Um Halloween, uh, i mean we just named a couple halloween nightmare on elm street some of the friday the 13th i guess i should have said some of the nightmare on elm streets and halloween definitely stay away from the rob zombie one it's <laughs> all i'm saying i won't go on to a tangent i'm gonna throw worry. it out
1: there too stay away from part six
0: which one both correct answer <laughs> deep red's a good one Uh i psycho i know they always put it as a slasher but i don't necessarily for me put it in the slasher category it's got a couple kills but i mean i get the point but well what do you think i
1: think it planted the seed i mean maybe it might not be a a flat-out slasher because there's not like a ton of deaths but I mean, it's definitely the shower scene is definitely a slasher scene. I think that I think it did enough to fit its way into the slasher genre. Or I don't think that maybe it's the best example of a slasher film, but I think it did enough to get put in there.
0: Okay. I guess you could make the comparison was it the New York Dolls are considered the creators of punk? They kind of came before the Ramones. Yeah. yeah. And then the Ramones are the ones that really took off with it. Yep. Uh, Alice Sweet Alice is another good one. I love Alice Sweet Alice. I mean, I could sit here and keep naming them Scream. Uh Friday thirteenth, part six. Give me a couple I haven't <laughs> named yet.
1: OG slasher wise. Okay. Let's go into hmm. Slashers that you haven't said. Okay, I mean technically a slasher film, Children of the Core. Oh yeah. Child's Play. One. The Child's Play oh, series.
0: Child's Play 2.
1: Uh <laughs> <laughs> Um There's also the Prowler, The Burning i mean yeah like, sleep sleepaway camp i miss Sleepaway camp, <laughs> terrifier Candyman. i mean like you said let's keep going all right <laughs> i'm gonna answer this damn question now let me answer okay. <laughs> um I'll stop. um so my answer to that would be obviously slasher as well um but uh since john pretty much i mean me and john are pretty much identical on that slasher all day every day halloween favorite film uh every movie we just mentioned i'm a fan of Ooh, um, pieces pieces <laughs> uh, absolutely um Uh, maniac again um but uh but i would have to i'm I'm gonna change my answer up a little bit i'm gonna tell you what my second favorite subgenre is because john pretty much covered the the, my main one and that would be uh paranormal like i'm gonna combine ghost slash haunting into the same category as exorcists and exorcisms and say that that's my second favorite subgenre because when i'm watching slashers i love them but those are things that happen. Those are things that I see on the news every day or read about on Facebook every day. Uh, it's the suspension of disbelief when I'm watching a good ghost story like *The Changeling*, or uh, *The Conjuring*, or you know *The Haunting*, or an exorcism film like *The Exorcist* or *The Exorcism of Emily Rose*. Like when when I can take when it's when I can watch something that I don't believe in, and for a moment or for that hour and a half, be completely sucked in and believe in it and react to it. I'd have to give uh Paranormal my my second favorite subgenre because of that reason,
0: yeah, I mean, even if you don't believe some of the movies, you're just like, Oh shit, like what if I just had a demon inside me?
1: yeah, like even if you don't believe that stuff, you know like it, it's enough uh, if it's done right, it'll do enough to make you double th- to think twice, and it'll make you paranoid if it does its job well
0: enough, yeah, I mean, first time I saw Exorcist, that scared the shit out of me, and i was I was older than you, my uh my dad and sister uh would watch a fair amount of horror movies and they made sure that there was no way i could end up watching it like i remember it was on cable tv and i even tried arguing with them they're like no you're not watching i think it was on like tnt or something and i'm like but it's on cable so like you know nothing bad's gonna like really get shown and they're like no you're still not watching this you're too young i was like 11 well i'm guessing i'm
1: gonna i've never talked to you about this. Um. Off the air, but if we're talking about again, if we're going to talk about uh, paranormal films that affected us, especially as as children, another one that fucked me up—that's a paranormal film, uh, especially as a child. Poltergeist. Hey,
0: Poltergeist didn't bother me that much. The I don't clown? Know. You're the one that's afraid of clowns. I the know. clown on it and do it for you. No, I don't know why. For some reason, like I wasn't scared of that movie as a kid, and then I saw it like as like a preteen and then i'm like oh shit this is like pretty creepy it's weird like i i've had horror movies like that i've told you before when i was younger like i would watch them and they wouldn't scare me then i'd watch them when i was older and then it scared me for some reason
1: i'll tell you one thing though i did used to sit in front of my uh tv religiously looking at that fuzz back in the day when you were trying to get porn you remember <laughs> You remember that channel. you remember that when you'd like go to the channel and it would just be like a rainbow of swirl and you would just wait for like one clear shot. Oh, That's sure. me. <laughs> anyway, uh don't forget to write in your questions to us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at High On Horror420 or email us at high on horror420 at gmail.com. We recently had a pretty good message about uh from a Dominatrix that wanted to <laughs> know that wanted to know if John and I were submissive. Uh we'll answer that in a future episode (laughs) or will we (laughs) write us we'd love to hear from you now it's time to get into our review slash discussion of this week's films never hike alone and never hike in the snow
0: all right today we're talking about the fan film Uh, Friday the 13th, the first one, Never Hike Alone, from 2017. A hiker's survival skills are put to the test when he stumbles upon the remains of an old abandoned camp and discovers its long, dark secret. And then the other film we'll be discussing as well is Never Hike in the Snow, which came out in 2020, but is actually a prequel to the Never Hike Alone and this takes place three months prior to the events of Never Hike Alone, and they follow the strange disappearance of Mark Hill, a Crystal Lake resident who went for a hike in the dead of winter and never came home.
1: Uh, I'm going to just put this out there. Uh, these these films are like Ash vs. Evil Dead to me. My biggest and only complaint is that there isn't more of it. <laughs> also um drew lady uh does a great job as kyle McLeod. uh very convincing
0: yeah i have to agree like at first i thought he was he kind of came off kind of douchey but then as the movie <laughs> goes on i mean he's like this wilderness guy like oh I'm, look at me i'm going to this camp like but then like towards the end like you find yourself really rooting for him i agree and there's so much suspense. I feel like at the end, that that whole like final twenty minutes is just so jam packed and suspenseful. Uh, Jason's great. I I don't have any complaints about that. And then uh, the never hike in the snow. I was happy to see Jason in the snow. That's something I've always kind of wanted to see. And I kind of understand why it never happened because it is a summer camp type situation usually with every movie. But uh, I did enjoy having a different backdrop.
1: I agree, and the thing about these movies is that uh, they're very tightly paced. Very tightly paced, well paced. Uh, The effects are good, the uh, special effects are very good. Like you just said, Jason is awesome, he's intimidating as hell. And um, I'm going to be honest with you, I think that uh, these movies... Uh, I think that they're better than a few of the actual Friday films. Um, honestly, oh, for sure. I would take these over uh, Jason Goes to Hell and X-Easy. Easy. I'd probably even take it over Part 8 as well. Uh, I know you're <sighs> a Part 8 fan, but I would also probably take them over Part 5.
0: I like Part 8. I love Jason Takes Manhattan. I watched it a bunch as a kid. It is not a good movie by any stretch, but I enjoy the shit out of part eight, so I could never get rid of that, but I definitely agree with, uh, the other three, five, uh, goes X. to hell and X. Yeah. I would definitely, definitely take this movie over those. Um, yeah, there's really nothing to complain about. And then when we, we get some veterans back, Tom Matthews reprising his role as Tommy Jarvis and our fucking boy Vinny G back as Sheriff Rick Cologne. This yeah. Time. Bang you bang still to me i i can't think of a better friday the 13th line than wherever the red dot goes you bang
1: (laughs) but uh you know we just talked about movies that are self-aware and take advantage of their strengths in our last episode and this these films are a great example of that uh if you look you know go up on imdb or just watch the films and you'll see that the kiss are small and that the locations are very few and far between. So it's a very tightly knit film that just tells the story that it wants to tell and then gets out of there before it becomes too ambitious and doesn't work. So it's crafty, and it's made from the heart. Especially after talking to Vincent, you can tell that these were a labor of love. Uh, These movies weren't made to gain clout. They were made for fans of the Friday the 13th series by an Uber fan.
0: Yeah, um... And, and it just feels like a continuation of, of that part six storyline. And I mean, we, we do get veterans from part six back, but I mean, like you said, the Kyle McLeod character, he's, he's amazing as well. And I mean, with the small cast, it does, it does help with, uh, I imagine saving money on the effects, which I can't, there's nothing that stands out to me that I can think of off the top of my head that I was like, oh wow, that, that, that effect didn't work that's what i'm
1: saying that's what i mean by uh, it worked to its strengths and told the story and got out of there it didn't linger on enough for there to be things to pick apart about it it just got in did its job and it was kind of perfect it just went in and did its job and got out of there and you're kind of left with like there's not really too much to complain if it had gone on longer and was maybe an hour and 30 hour and 40 minutes maybe there would have been a problem but due to it being a short film that the, the pacing was perfect and that's 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 basically what i'm saying.
0: Yeah, and other thing I like is I feel like you see a lot of times, a lot of these low-budget movies, somebody has the idea for a kill or an effect, and then they don't have the funds or the abilities to pull it off, believably, and they still just leave it in the movie because that was something they wanted to do. There's none of that in this.
1: I agree 100 100%, 100%. And,
0: and I, I will say I do recommend, if you do watch it on YouTube, uh, the way I watched it, uh, so I guess I'm being a little biased because I didn't watch them separately. Uh, but I, the the ghost cut is the best way, I think, to watch it. And uh, it actually does have the never hike in the snow at the beginning. And then it jumps into the never hike alone. So it puts it in chronological order.
1: I I, I would agree. The ghost cut is definitely the way to go. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I just I can't wait to see what's in store um, for the future of these films, man. You know, I I can't wait because uh, I've said it in another episode, but I'll say it again. Tom McLaughlin said to us that uh, people, fans, were getting tired of the lawsuit holding the Friday the 13th series up, and they started making their own. That's the case with this film, just like it is the case with the other fan films. But this is that rare case where, like, this is that lightning in the bottle. This is like, damn, like, they really did this. Like, damn good fan films.
0: And, (laughs) And, I mean, I hope that maybe now that the lawsuit's done and maybe we get a get a studio movie Jason, uh, well, Friday the 13th movie, that maybe they look at some of these fan films and somebody like Vincent, and they're like, hey, like we saw what you did. But I, I don't know that the studios care that much about the Friday the 13th series, that they would do their homework to see that there's some fans out here doing some real good shit that should be just... I mean, you can give them a lower budget. They're working on a lower budget than probably you're going to get from a studio, mm-hmm. and just let them just make the Friday the Thirteenth movie. I know all you studio guys probably look at it as your little bastard movie you have there, <laughs> a little kind ugly of,
1: redheaded stepchild.
0: Like, uh, you know, was it Universal? I think did 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 to the Three Stooges. Like, oh, you're making us money, but we but we don't think you're sophisticated, so we're not. We 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 don't want to give you a budget, even though you're the ones keeping us in business. Yep.
1: Or like how uh, the Exorcist, um, you know, gets you know all this approval from Warner Brothers as long as it's labeled a drama. <laughs>
0: yeah. Just like they don't really want to call. Uh, they they never wanted to call The Silence of the Lambs a horror movie. Yeah, I know. Well, I think that'll about wrap up our discussion. So now we can get into Burn and Learn, the segment of our show where we fill you on fill you in on some cool behind-the-scenes facts about the movie and discussion. And in this case, Never Hike Alone and Never Hike in the Snow.
2: Oh. Hmm.
1: Burn and Learn. Never Hike Alone was filmed outside Big
0: Bear, California in a place called Angeles Oaks. It was also filmed in Flagstaff, Arizona in Lake Mary for the head crush scene. Disappear music video and the abandoned camp coverage in Never Hike in the Snow.
1: Fans dubbed the Jason from, our, from the films Ghost Jason because of the mask having no chevrons.
0: Ghost Jason and Kyle McLeod both appear in Blue Wizard's Friday the 13th puzzle game, which is pretty fun, I have to say.
1: The opening of Never Hike in the Snow is shot in an actual snowstorm, and the crew had to chase it through the throughout the day.
0: Nora Hewitt, the special effects makeup lead on Never Hike in the Snow, was the season nine winner of Face Off.
1: Uh, Vincent Desanti and Andrew Lady both appeared in the upcoming Friday. Both appear in the upcoming Friday the Thirteenth meta slasher, Thirteen Fanboy, coming out October twenty second, twenty twenty
0: one. Andrew actually punched Jason's mask in the first fight scene and split his knuckle open in some scenes. You can still see his hand taped up. You know, that didn't happen to our boy in uh, uh, Jason Takes Manhattan. He never All those split punches, his knuckles.
1: too. All those punches, no blood. No, there was blood, but no bandages.
0: Not, not to get off-tangent here, but I have to say when I did see that in the movie, I went, you know, that seems more realistic if somebody just punched this hockey mask. <laughs> <laughs> well, um...
1: Uh, Tommy Jarvis says, uh, played by Tom Matthews in this film, awesome, he's back, Uh, Tommy Jarvis says that their location is off Cunningham Road when he's calling dispatch, Cunningham obviously being a nod to the series creator, Sean Cunningham, who John and I just met at Monster Mania, classy fella.
0: The playboy that Axel is reading at the end of Never Hike Alone is from 1980, the same year as the original Friday the 13th film.
1: Uh, that's pretty badass. Uh, well, let's get to, uh, let's talk more about these films and get to talking with Vincent DeSanti. Our guest today has done work in just about every aspect of the film industry that you can think of. But most recently, he's the buzz of the Friday the 13th fandom because he's the man behind the Never Hike Alone and the Never Hike in in the Snow fan films and the upcoming sequels. He wrote, produced, directed, and played the role of Jason Voorhees himself. Welcome, Vincente DeSanti. Thank you for being on High on Horror.
2: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. How you doing today?
1: All right, so uh, we're doing good. Um, Thank you again so much for making the time to... uh, you know be on this show we're we're excited to talk to you
2: of course yeah no i'm happy to hop into all things horror and uh marijuana
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right well um all right uh so let's start with the marijuana thing then since you brought it up Uh, how often do you smoke
2: um usually when i want to get into a creative flow um i'll usually smoke a little weed or something um you know, out here in California, it's legal, so it's nice. So we have, you know, the dispensaries all over the place. Uh, we, ha- you can get it delivered to your house. Um, it's funny when I go to other states and I tell people that, and they're just—they just look at me like I'm crazy. But yeah, I know it, it's—it's sort of like there's two modes of writing. There's creative writing and then there's sort of the, the cleanup. And so when it's just sort of let my mind go and I want to relax and I don't want to think about too much or if I just want to kind of go on a tangent, it's usually a good time for me to kind of sit back and, you know, find a comfy spot, go somewhere. Um, a lot during Never Hike Alone, I would go up to the camp, you know, um, and I would get in, you know, get in the moat, smoke a little weed at Camp Crystal Lake and then sit down and write That's scenes, awesome. <laughs> or sit down and, and I would walk through the buildings and sort of let my mind wander and get into the headspace of Kyle. and what he would be seeing or what the audience was going to see. You know, I think that, you know, one of the things that I think, you know, for all those years for marijuana getting a bad rap, that when it's used correctly, it can be a very, you know, enlightening and and fun experience. I mean, we get, we allow people to get wasted on booze and, and all that stuff. And I stopped drinking a long time ago. I actually supplemented my alcohol intake with uh, marijuana use. So when I go out and party, I don't drink. And I find myself, you know, having a much better time. I'm not I don't find myself Absolutely. with a face in a toilet bowl at the end of the night. You know what I mean? Maybe my face is in like the brownie bowl, but <laughs> that, <laughs> I think, you know, it's a little easier to run off the pounds than get up with a headache the next day. So I don't know. I, I just really like that feeling of, of sort of stepping outside for a minute and, and use it to get kind of creative. I come up with jokes. It's usually when I write my comedy stuff. And then when I sober up and I'm, you know, I'm just kind of straight lace bin like I am right now. I. I read what I wrote and I go, what is this idiot talking about? <laughs> and then sort of shave it down and and bring it into sort of a I guess a, a more finalized version. But a lot of those kernels for Never Hike Alone kind of like can kind of pop out of there or any project that I'm ever working on.
1: Yeah. Um, it's it's uh it's it's pretty cool, you know, to to know that like I can only imagine smoking at Camp Crystal Lake, how awesome that would be.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and yeah right. Yeah, it's a <laughs> um well, uh, do you uh, <laughs> do, do you
1: do you have a favorite strain that you like to smoke? Like anything in particular? Like that gets you in the zone?
2: Um, usually Jack Herer um is pretty good. I'm a sativa smoker. I like the creative juices there. Very rarely am I smoking indica just to like sink into the couch. Um, uh, maybe you know if after a long thing of shooting and I just want to like sit down and watch movies all day. Um, I'll go into something that's a little bit more heavy on the indica side. But I'm mostly mostly on the sativa side of things
0: and uh what well, what's your favorite way like to consume edibles
2: uh just an old-fashioned joint man just a j just like that's just like just like the big lebowski <laughs> just oh, light up a j one of my
0: favorite movies
2: and and call it a day and um yeah I, I just think there's something to sort of like i don't know relaxing about it like that's that's my cold beer on a sunday afternoon you know what i mean it's it's i, I want to sit down put on a godzilla movie and you know, smoke a little bit of a joint, Godzilla. And relax. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm a big Godzilla guy, just as much as I'm. I'm Friday the Thirteenth. In fact, I got a a VHS player on my on my counter back there that I got all these old Godzilla VHS tapes that I've been collecting over the years. And when I'm here working in the office, I usually throw Godzilla on in the background. I don't even have to watch the movie; I can just listen to it, and I can mm-hmm. I know exactly where I am. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. And, uh, Tom Matthews, he mentioned, uh, way back when he used to get four fingers of Colombian dirt. weed. did he ever bring any of that on set? <laughs> no,
2: Tom left the dirt. weed at home, but if Tom <laughs> ever wanted me to smoke him out, I totally would. Um, God, I love that man. He's so funny. Um, he, he was, uh, he was a blast to work with. Um, he's super lighthearted. Um, And, you know, like I told the story the other day, I think somebody asked me on Twitter, like, what was it like to work with Tom? And I could sum it up in this is like, towards the end of Never Hike Alone, there were a few lines in the ambulance that kind of got his mic, got a little caught in his shirt. So we had to ADR it. And um, when I called him over to my house, I opened it up and Tom Matthews is soft shoeing on my welcome mat. He's like, ready to do this? (laughs) Like, what is (laughs) going on right now? Like, this is like surreal. And, you know, since I've gotten to know Tom, we've sat down and, you know, talked, you know, movies, life and and everything in between so it, it's been a real pleasure getting to know him and working with him as an actor and, and seeing sort of this resurgence you know ever since he started doing the game you know and then he did never hike alone we've seen a lot more demand for tom matthews all over the place so i've been really um excited to sort of be a part of his resurgence and of him coming back into the fold as a as a horror icon
0: yeah and uh, as you were saying he did uh, reprise his role at the end of never hike alone mm-hmm. uh what was it like being able to get a veteran like him on board
2: it was again it's surreal like when i started never hike alone it was supposed to be a five minute short it exploded into something much more and my um executive producer who saw our early trailers who came on after the fact um you know arranged a meeting between me and tom he had met tom at somebody had arranged a meeting for him for his birthday. It was a dinner with Tom Matthews sort of present because uh, there was a mutual friendship there. Um, and, you know, he pitched Tom the idea of doing a fan film. At first, Tom had no interest in doing a fan film, but he thought he'd at least entertain the idea to see what we were up to because of the trailer that had come out online. And... Um, when I showed him the second trailer was when he decided that, yes, I want to be a part of this. This looks great. Like, how do, what can I do? And, you know, we explained to him the role and what he would do. And I think what my biggest goal with that was and what I pitched to him was that, listen, I'm not asking you to come on and we're not going to rewrite the movie. Like, I love you, but I'm not going to rewrite the movie and redo everything with the money I don't have. And try to raise money off you and all these different things because i don't know what the legality is there at the time it was like no alumni should be showing up in fan films it wasn't allowed um everything that i had read people have been sued for that so we were sort of trying to play it safe and what i said was is like if you allow us to finish our film i had always intended on approaching you about a sequel because i had an idea of how you would come back and how we would you know mix the whole thing into the fold but There's this opportunity to do it in a little bit of a different way and to have you sort of be a surprise at the end of the film, that when people think Jason is about to burst through the ambulance doors, that is going to be you. And you're going to be the ambulance driver. And I'm going to write a whole backstory for you about how you became an ambulance driver and all this stuff to make it make sense. And maybe we can do that as the sequel. But for now, you know, in 2017, I don't know if you guys remember, but there was supposed to be a film that came out and it got canceled in January after Rings bombed and friday the 13th fans were down and this is when i was this is when i met tom and it was that january and we were sort of like we got to do something special for the fans so we're making this film and it's going to release on friday the 13th it's going to be about an hour long and if it's good enough that should put a few smiles on their faces but if we have you at the end of the movie and you become the surprise that nobody knows that's in it like we have this meeting today nobody finds out about it we do the whole We, you know, we crowdfund, we do all that stuff. We don't tell anybody you're at the film at our own detriment for raising money and raising money on your name. Like we'd rather surprise people and give them that sort of like never saw it coming feeling, which films do not do anymore. They show you everything in the trailer. We wanted to give Friday the 13th fans that feeling. And that was, you know, a big kind of, Part of the formula. So when people watch the film on on you know October thirteenth, two thousand seventeen, and Tom Matthews all of a sudden pops up in a fan film that they thought was pretty cool already, you know I think that it was sort of the the cherry on top and and getting fans excited about Friday the thirteenth again and for the first time since two thousand nine, you know giving them something to look forward to and and you know since then you know Friday the thirteenth fans have have blown up and we've sort of taken over the space. And, you know, a lot of that has to go with Tom really legitimizing it and starting it and helping us make this film that um, that sell, set a little bit more than, than the previous fan films that have come out, which didn't have access to the technology that we had in modern times. A lot of the fan films that we saw, you know, prior to Never Hike Alone were done with... Uh, you know, handheld cameras that you can get, you know, at Best Buy that, you know, look like their home video cameras and they don't have that cinematic quality. And it wasn't until around like the DSLR age and the late stage DSLR age that you could get a really cinematic look out of a, out of a, out of a, uh, just a handheld camera. Um, You know, we obviously upgraded along the way of production. We were afforded gifts because people were, you know, loving what we were doing and we were able to upgrade to a red camera. But the start of Never Hike Alone started on a, on a DSLR. Um, So it was kind of cool to see that this sort of steady climb of now when you hear about a fan film, it's like an entire film production. And that's really sort of, you know, out of the grassroots that people are realizing that no matter where they are in the country, they can build these teams and do it. And a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, with Tom and, and starting this sort of like revolution with us. Yeah, both
0: of the films look beautiful. And I mean, except for the fact that they're on YouTube, I mean, you wouldn't have known that they were fan films.
2: Hey, it could be a YouTube feature.
0: <laughs> True, uh, and you said that uh, some of the other fan films didn't have alumni in them because uh, they had been sued. Uh, was that for like copyright? reasons
2: that they were getting sued mostly most of the the biggest hoopla came from uh, a lawsuit called axonar it was uh cbs versus star trek axonar it was a star trek fan film and they had raised about 1.2 or 2.1 million dollars on kickstarter which you know raised a lot of eyebrows i mean these guys were going out or this team of, of people were going out and they were executing star trek fan films at a very high level It looked professional, and all of a sudden they started signing alumni. Alumni were going to reprise their roles. Alumni which the studios had no intention of bringing back. So it wasn't like they were really stepping on anyone's toes, but CBS stepped in and said, whoa, millions of dollars? We need to talk about this. What is a fan film? What is not a fan film? It went into court. Um, The people behind uh, Axanar were actually supported by J.J. Abrams, who was directing Star Trek at the time, and said, listen, if they're doing it this well let them do it like they're fans this is part of the fandom we make fan films we play, we dress up we do these things and a lot of these fans have talent so let them show their talent they could be the next star trek director and there were a lot of other you know filmmakers that spoke up and supported it but at the end of the day there was a lawsuit that basically said if you're going to make a fan film for star trek it's going to be under t- 30 minutes it's or it's going to be between like 15 and 25 minutes can't have alumni the the cap of the budget is fifty thousand dollars um and you have to put a warning up front that says this is a fan film you have to put fan film in the title there's all these sort of rules that they listed and so we took that and applied it to friday the 13th on never hike alone saying we're going to try to follow all these rules and systematically like broke each one of them because we went to 54 minutes we spent around fifty thousand uh, dollars at the end of the day um we had an alumni you know show up and you know, it was a big risk. I thought I was going to get a cease and desist letter. I thought Sean Cunningham was going to be on my door, like with his hand out, being like, "You owe me money." And you know, nothing. And so since then, we've all been pushing the envelope. Different, you know, fan films are signing different alumni. Uh, they're raising, you know, between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars uh, to, to do it. Over a hundred thousand dollars in some case, like what we did with Never Hike in the Snow. I've seen other fan films raise a pretty good, considerable amount of money. Um, but, you know, I think the more people learn about film production is that they're realizing about how expensive it is, that they want these films to look like they do. Um, you know, specifically when I talk about never hike in the snow, that was, I mean, the package we had out there is the same sort of package they have on a, you know, a low budget Netflix movie. Um, we have the same cameras, we have a lot of the same equipment, um, we're working with a lot of the same time and schedules, um. And a similar crew. I mean, our crew works. You know, when we're not working on this stuff, we're working on professional stuff. I just got done with a stint on American Horror Story. My, you know, DP is working for shows on HBO. Um, Our gaffers and everybody work all over town on professional projects. So it's really cool that when fans come together and support us, we're able to wrangle a very professional crew that's able to create what is basically low, you know, what they call is uh, not micro budget, but low budget SAG. films that you know, are under $250,000. In our case, we've kept our productions under 50 um, and spent a lot of more money in post and things like that. Um, there's also the cost of doing Indiegogos in, in there. So there's almost like a third wheel to the whole thing um, that a lot of people don't know about. But we put our money right into the screen. And we try to make it look as professional as possible. So you can't tell the difference between, oh, this was shot with, you know, a bunch of you know, weekend warriors who just, you know, happen to have a hobby as, as making film versus a bunch of, you know, schooled filmmakers who are, you know, doing their best to give the fans something that feels authentic and feels real and feels like it could connect into the series um, and you wouldn't miss a beat. And then it's on the same production production execution level.
0: And I mean, it really, really does show up on the screen. Um, what, what made you decide to move away from the traditional? we have a bunch of camp counselors at crystal lake and just focus on uh Kyle the wilderness expert.
2: Money it takes a <laughs> lot of money to kill a lot of people and make it look good. Um and the the one thing that I said that I wanted to do was I never wanted to make the films look cheap. I always wanted to avoid having to do things cheaply or kind of like ruin the experience of like take like I'd rather do less and have those things that show up on screen be so good that like that's what you remember. Rather than having a few sort of eh, kills, you're know, like, mm, that was not OK, you know, or that looks fake. You know, and that's, I, I wanted to avoid that at all costs. And it honestly came from also the fact that, um, you know, I only had one actor at the time. The idea of Never Hike Alone was supposed to be a five to seven minute short. You know, he goes into camp. It was very truncated. He wakes up in the woods. He goes into Camp Crystal Lake. He gets chased by Jason and he gets murdered. And he gets dragged off into the woods, and that was the end of the short. And it wasn't until we discovered that abandoned camp after making the first trailer that we realized that there was something much more there. There was a potential to tell a story. There was a a potential to take fans down memory lane and say, hey, remember where this all started? It all started right here at Camp Crystal Lake, the first movie. Why did this happen? Why is this happening? you know, the the murders of, of Pamela, Jason coming back, the tale of the curse, you know, does a curse ever die? And where is Jason? And sort of me as a fan searching for where is the Jason I remember from my childhood? Because ever since Friday the 13th, part eight, I felt like Jason has been missing. Like, yeah, we got Jason goes to hell and Jason X and Freddy versus Jason, but it feels like a sort of an imposter Jason that doesn't feel like it's connected to that story that they were telling as convoluted and you know wild as it was, it still felt like the same Jason. And I felt like our Jason that coming back was going to be the return of that Jason, the return of that story and the end of his story and how we would do that. Or at least in this time, it's like, where has he been hiding? Um, it also came off the fact that since we had the one actor and we sort of looked at the formula for how we would do it, I looked at films like 127 Hours and The Martian which feature a character that's on their own that all they have is a camera to talk to and when they talk to that camera they directly engage with the audience and we get that found footage feel but we're able to step away from the camera when they're not talking to it and go into a traditional narrative camera which allows us to shoot a beautiful movie and so having a beautiful set in big bear california that when we you know the sunlight the way it hit it and the way that we could shoot the camp and the way that kyle looked walking through it we spent an entire summer building props and filling it back up and building signs and doing all that stuff so we could go and tell a full tale through that story and do something that i've always wanted to do which is like one of the things you do in film is wish fulfillment one of my wishes is that i wish i could transport into the world of friday the 13th and walk through camp crystal lake so i wanted to give the audience that experience of walking through camp crystal lake with kyle and then using the gopro as a point of view that you will put the audience in front of the character and sort of create more tense moments because no longer is the camera behind the character pushing forward with them between you and Jason now you the act i mean you the watcher is right there and if Jason comes out, you're the one who's going to get attacked first. So it creates more of a tense experience, and it's something I always thought found footage could bring to Friday the 13th, even though I never necessarily wanted to see a complete found footage Friday the 13th film, which they talked about in you know 2013, 2014. So really, it came down to sort of like that formula, using it well, and seeing how much story we could actually kind of pepper in before it got boring. And then the second half came to how do you make it interesting to create a final girl-esque sequence with this one character that is going to go through stages of fights with Jason and not have it feel hokey? And so we had to design each moment where Kyle and Jason interact with each other to feel natural and like Kyle was fighting back and he was holding his own, but it was really only... Just to get enough time to get away from Jason because there was no way he was ever going to be able to overmatch him or defeat him. It was only about stun Jason and get away, which is a big part of the Friday the 13th game. And you can see how like-minded people kind of kind of work. And what I discovered in that process was that it created entertaining cinema. And we just kept creating ways to make it more entertaining um, and kind of dip back into the well of having them have fights. Like they have their first handheld fight and then... You know, then they have the interior fight, then they have the struggle on, on the trail, um, they have the fight inside the cabin, the fight outside the cabin, and then you know the big grand finale. And so the back half of the movie is designed around this sort of Chris Higgins-esque like, escalating, Chris Higgins and, and also um, Trish Jarvis in a way, the way that like those final sequences with Jason sort of went to different places. You know, even Alice and and Pamela, to a certain degree, there, there were the different places where they fought and they had to get away from each other. And every time they got to a new setting, there was a new type of scare that was set up. And instead of, because we didn't have you know multiple deaths in the film what we had were multiple fight sequences we had multiple instances where in old films a character would die if somebody got thrown off the second story of a house in an old Friday the 13th they would automatically die even though we know that most of us would survive that fall we'd have some <laughs> broken ribs we'd have the wind knocked out of us but we wouldn't die <laughs> you know what i mean like we would you know if we got stabbed we when you get stabbed you don't all of a sudden ha- go into shock and die you bleed and you bleed out for a long time, and then you die. Death is not very quick. Um, in the context of making it Never Hike Alone, it's very man versus nature. And it's very much a survivalist in a survival tale. You know, in, you know, In 127 Hours, it's a man versus his arm getting stuck in a rock. In The Martian, it's a man versus Mars. And in this, it was a man versus Jason and what that would be like. So that was the other element, too, to make it a survivalist movie. And with all those elements, that's how we were sort of able to take the pitch of it's going to be one-on-one, which when you hear it up front, go like, that's not a Friday the 13th movie and turn that idea around and make it work.
0: Yeah. it's funny that you mentioned the game. Cause I immediately thought that about all you could do is kind of stun them and run away. Uh, are you a big fan of the game? Mm-hmm.
2: I'm a backer in the game. Um, I was an early backer in the game. I have my name in the computer. Um, and I also designed one of the kills,
0: uh, which one free kick okay that's a good one Nice. uh what, what did you want to personally bring to the role of jason
2: um i wanted to just keep jason scary um i wanted to show certain um traits that i always thought jason had but weren't necessarily shown on screen very often his swiftness um you know hunting people down uh the way he moves through the forest um you know, just always trying to make him imposing and iconic as much as we could bring back that iconic sort of feel to him. Um, and, and just make him dangerous and scary. I mean, that, that was really what it was. I think for me, it was, I spent a lot of time practicing, um, putting on the costume, walking around in the forest, getting used to it, you know, doing camera tests and seeing how the, how the costume looked, how the body posturing looked, you know, the ways we would turn our head, the way that we would turn our body. And, um, walk and all that stuff and I also have to say that I did share this role with a stunt double his name is Brian Forrest so there were certain days where we were on a time crunch or we only had our stunt actors on set and so we had to do that stuff because um, we had a stunt coordinator so Brian Forrest was was my stunt double and so a lot of the times him and I are kind of going back and forth we're switching out of the costume um, doing different things we handle different stunts depending on what it is um, a lot of the fighting is Brian a lot of the in-between and trail chases and jumping out of the lake, um, that's me. And so we shared it about like 55, 45. And then all the in-between stuff is what I do. Um, you know, we it, like disappear. I did all of that. Never hike in the snow. He did a good amount of that. And I shared that role with him as, again as well. Um, it's funny because Brian Forrest actually plays the deputy in Never hike in the snow. He's the one who gets murdered in the final scene and so we we sort of switch costumes he goes from the costume in one scene then he switches into that and then i murder him so in the next film what i said is i have to write myself apart so he can murder me in the film and then we can figure out to each murder each other in this series which would be a lot of fun but brian does a really great job of doubling me and sort of everything i learned about jason and i brought to the table as an actor i then have to teach him how to do it and do it just like I do. So you don't feel like you're watching two different people. And that's the cool part is that a lot of people go like, they don't realize there's a second guy in the costume and we're both doing it, but we both maintain sort of a certain, you know, certain rules that we follow. And if, as long as we follow those rules, you can't tell who's in, who's in the costume and who's not.
0: Yeah. I, I wasn't aware. I had a stunt double, so it really does. It, it seems like it's all the same person. And uh what what was the first Friday the thirteenth movie you ever saw?
2: I can't remember if it was part six or part seven. It was one of the two. It was definitely with undead Jason. Um, and I just remember falling in love with the character and the mask and you know, everything. And um I started to go back through the films and I was really confused because Jason always looked different and he never looked the same twice, except maybe between part three and four. Um And it always sort of confused me. Even part five confused me for a long time. It took me a long time to realize that that was Roy in the mask because it doesn't look a thing like him. And them explaining at the end, I was so young. I mean, I was probably like eight or nine watching these films when I really shouldn't have. But I was just really enthralled with sort of the setting. You know, I grew up in in the woods and on a lake out in Massachusetts. So it was very similar to the way that a lot of the Friday the 13th look, especially the early ones. Um, And... Yeah, and I just really took to them really, really, uh really early.
1: It's funny that you said that about being way too young because I find that being a common thing amongst Friday the thirteenth fans is that everybody's like, Oh, I saw that shit when I was like six and seven years old. And it's like, that's the truth. It doesn't make sense, but for some reason we're drawn to it. We keep coming back to it.
2: Yeah, and especially with kids. I mean, like I think that you saw the kid appeal sort of show up, you know, Jason became a pop culture icon after part six. Um, you know, he was in the culture sort of through the first four, but they were still seen as these independent sort of gritty movies. And all of a sudden part six comes along and it was an action blockbuster. And that's what the films became. They became the big marketing campaigns. I remember growing up with part seven marketing and part eight marketing and Jason goes to hell, you know, and Jason X and, and everything that came after afterward where, where Jason became larger than life. Um, but you know it's it's sort of it's sort of interesting the fact that like when they become that big and that iconic that jason sort of is a cartoon character and he has that appeal to kids especially ones that like horror movies you know we grew up on um what's it called you know the monster squad and and goonies and things that sort of rode that line gremlins Um, you know, I watched Jaws. Ernest Scared Stupid. (laughs) Ernest Scared Stupid. You know, they did I think we grew up with a really good time of like kid-friendly horror that introduced us to horror horror. And, you know, I I I really can't say that there is another feeling that I've ever had other than that feeling on a Friday after school, walking down, you know, the film aisle. And you could walk up and down all the film aisles and you could see all the covers of, you know, the different things that were in there back when it was VHS. And then you walk down the horror aisle, and those covers are just something else. Uh, my mom read a lot of Stephen King, so there were a lot of Stephen King books in my house, and I always saw those covers, and they were always really cool looking, and they had cool, you know, graphics. And if you opened up some of them, they had really great paintings, and some of them had really scary paintings. And so they reminded me sort of of like that type of stuff. Grew up on Creepshow, watching Tales from the Crypt. You know, me and my mom used to. I used to stay up on, on you know Friday nights, and I'd watch Tales from the Crypt with my mom because I loved the Crypt Keeper because he was so funny. He was a muppet, you know. It's like, how is that not for kids? And you know, being drawn to it and being drawn to that whole thing, it was just um, you know I I can see why our whole generation sort of grew up on Jason way too early.
1: Uh, It's funny that you brought up Tales from the Crypt because that's one of the things that I, I often mention is that that was my first real introduction into horror was watching it. Every uh I think it was Friday or Saturday on HBO with my mom, like under the covers, like that's how I remember being introduced to the genre. And he was scary as shit looking, but he was funny, so I wasn't too scared, you know. And and it's like that was my first introduction, and that was it. I was hooked. Everything she watched after that, it was Friday the Thirteenth, Exorcist. I was watching it, and I shouldn't have been watching it, you know. <laughs> um, Did you get that but, uh, in your
2: chest and like the show opened and it started to fly through like the house, and you just get like kind of yes. scared, <laughs> like oh this is creepy, and like I I. Used to love that feeling i i told what was your favorite um tales from the crypt episode
1: oh it's got to be um an all through the house i still love that episode like it's a shame my son's too young because i don't want him to know like uh about evil santas but like i can't wait to like get him to watch that <laughs> that episode yeah. is amazing what about you? what's your favorite episode
2: uh television terror i love the one with martin downey jr and he goes into the house and he basically does like al capone's vault but he finds the murderous yeah, yeah, yeah. with the chainsaw oh my god that scared me to oh my god that one and the joe pesci one where he gets sawed in half
1: yeah with the twins <laughs> right right the twin the episode. Twins, yeah he
2: kept coming back and, <laughs> and it was the uh the, the sunburn that gave him away <laughs> <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah and uh
1: yeah oh, uh, like my my favorite time in life I remember as a kid was just those watching that show when it was like dark and storming out with lightning and just like my mom would have the door open and like there'd be a breeze and like that's when I think back to like my childhood you know like I'm like those were the memories man, because here I am all these years later, and like that shit still circulates in my head way more than it should. It just stuck for some reason um yeah even you know, afraid uh, the
2: arc was was there with for us it was you know that was it was, oh, was yeah. kind of another thing you know that kind of brought us out
1: that was pretty cool um so look before i get into my never height questions i gotta say um it would be an absolute sin if i didn't talk to you about godzilla for a second because godzilla is my second greatest love after horror and uh so i gotta know uh you said you always have a godzilla movie playing in the background that's me recently it's been psycho gorman because i think that movie is amazing but usually it's a godzilla movie and i want to know what's your favorite godzilla film And uh, which one do you find, you know, playing in the background the most?
2: Oh, my favorite Godzilla film is uh, The Return of Godzilla, Godzilla 1985, uh, but the Japanese version with the actual like Soviet and U.S. kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff that didn't get cut out in the U.S. version. Um, Right. But my go-to pleasure, like when I want to put on a a VHS is uh, Godzilla versus the sea monster.
1: Okay. Okay. I'm I'm a big fan of uh, Godzilla. It, it but, is, it is. I like um, Godzilla versus Destroyer, though, man. Destroyer is a bad motherfucker. Yeah. You know, like, so those, it's Hesai like those, those action scenes, those fight scenes are just incredible. I'm sorry, what'd you say?
2: I say you're a big uh, Hesai era fan oh that. yeah
1: yeah um i even i even like the legendary films honestly like uh i, I take you know from them the good parts I, every godzilla film has flaws i mean i can't i can't look back at the ones that look like a puppet and be like oh the new ones suck look, i mean look at how incredible <laughs> godzilla looks in the new movies it's like i find things to like in all of them it's just like the the bad friday the 13th films or the bad nightmare on elm street films i love them all you know it's like i can, they all fit into like my repertoire of films that i'd watch yeah I hear
2: you. how do yeah, you I'm feel big, about the uh, legendary films? I like the legendary films. I think they're pretty good. Um, you know, I think that, like, I am i don't know, as I've gotten older, I'm, I, I kind of tend towards, like, I like the first one. I mean, I know Godzilla's not in it a lot, but I remember the feeling I got when they finally showed him in that movie after they just, like, you know, stroked you the whole movie. And, like, they kept almost showing him. And then you finally got to see him move. It was like, man, they got him right. An American mm-hmm. production got Godzilla right. And there were a lot of great things about it. And I think that they've obviously taken it in like really ridiculous patterns. Um, But I think if they go that route of doing just a monster movie with like barely any humans, that will be the next big thing. And I would love to see that movie. Um, But I'm also a big fan of Shin Godzilla, which. um, Oh,
1: my God. Yes. Yes.
2: Love that movie. Um, Love it. It's like it makes me laugh. Um, because of the satire of it about the bureaucracy and, and the ageism and all that stuff that they kind of pepper in through it about the guy who is always right, they're like, "Oh, it's probably this," and they're like, "You're wrong," and then they're like, "Wait, it's that thing," <laughs> and he's just like, yeah, "Come right, on! Right. he's just <laughs> like pulling his hair out until everyone dies and he's finally in charge.
1: I know, and, and and it's the first film that we really see Godzilla kind of evolve, too. That was, uh, that was the thing for me. Like, what, 15 minutes in, I'm like, oh, shit, he's a big fish. And then you, know, you yeah. kind of start seeing, he's like, you know, I thought that was amazing. And uh, that's, that's kind of the battle with me is, like, I kind of prefer Godzilla as that disaster movie more than being the hero, like in the legendary films. But I still like him as the hero. It's like, Godzilla, you can't go wrong with Godzilla. Unless you're yeah, 1998 Matthew Broderick.
2: Well, yeah, that you—that doesn't count. That's Zilla, whatever that is. <laughs> um, that was such a big letdown when I was a kid because all I wanted to see him was like his spines light up and just like blast New York and you never got to see it. And so that, and, you know. Yeah, like, no, he didn't even have do, like, atomic breath. I know. He, he just like blew some fire once. Like that was supposed to like do it. It's like, what are you thinking? Like if you don't know Godzilla, just go away. Like you're going exactly. get out of here. <laughs> Giant
1: All right, well, let's get back into uh into, into never hike alone. Um, let's get back into it Uh, thank you for talking to me about Godzilla for a second. I always like talking about Godzilla. Anytime. Um <laughs> Okay, so uh from conception to execution how long did never hike alone take to become a reality?
2: Okay, so our first trailer came out in may of 2016 that was probably like a six-week process of kind of figuring it out. Um, Neverike Alone had been an idea for about a year and a half since then. I did try another version of it like the previous summer that just didn't work out. I realized I didn't have what I needed. Um, so it took about a year of like retooling to make it work. From May 2016, um, we went into pre-production all summer. Um, we launched a crowdfunding campaign in the, in the fall of 2016. It was unsuccessful, but we did get some backers out of it. So a couple backers contacted us outside of the campaign, lent us some money. Um, And we went and shot the first half of the film. We took a break for the winter, cut a new trailer, signed Tom secretly, um, got back to it in March of 2017. We shot March through July, early July 2017, did some pickups in August, and then we released on October 13th, 2017 at the Telluride Horror Show
1: okay yeah that's that's a great story uh that yeah and we're all glad that it happened (laughs) Uh, it's a it's a it's an awesome experience man and uh i wanted to bring up to you you had talked to you just said to john a few minutes ago you had brought up 127 hours and that's something that i had actually just said to john before this interview was i said i said i think the first never hike alone is like 127 hours crashes midway through and becomes a friday the 13th film so i wanted Mm -hmm. to ask you like uh what was the inspiration or the uh the you know i guess the where did the idea come from for you to have not a final girl, but a final guy?
2: I mean, again, that was like sort of um, having Andrew and, and expanding on his character and how it would make sense. You know, he went from sort of this no name character in the early versions who just happened to wander into Camp Crystal Lake because he was, you know, on his phone, not paying attention and taking pictures of the forest um, into something that was a little bit more fleshed out, you know, a YouTube vlogger who's going off and doing a YouTube channel um, know, yeah, I think it was like, it was around that time when YouTube was sort of like getting a little bit more popular and more vloggers were coming out. And I was, I saw some hiking trail stuff, uh, you know, Bear Grylls was a big thing at the time. Um, I said, what if this guy was like Bear Grylls like, like he's just some dude with like a few a thousand followers, just enough to sort of get by, but not like super famous, just, just getting by. And I, it just sort of like, I just sort of took onto that role and, and it was really sort of fun to develop and develop him and realize that like, yeah, we were going to do the final gold trope with this guy who looks like a mix between like the dude from sons of anarchy and Thor. And and so we just thought it was, it was a good combo. Like Andrew's a good looking dude. Like he's a he was a male model at the time. He was doing cover book, you know, his, he was most known for doing uh, the covers of romance novels as a model. He was very big on, on that circuit. And so we thought, Hey, you know what? Something for the girls. It's like, let's get a nice pretty guy out there, let him run around, let the girls ooh and on, and let the dudes who are watching it be like, yeah, go get him. You know, and like kind of, say, you know, a guy, you know, going that one-on-one, mano-a-mano with Jason, I think is something that we've rarely seen a male character in Friday the 13th do. So I thought it was different and say, hey, this is what we got, we're going to make it work, and a lot of the same rules are going to apply, but our character can fight back you know, we're going to give him a little bit of that Jules energy, you know, let him go out there, try to go, you know, one-on-one with Jason, but we're not going to punch his head off. We're just going to bust him up real good. Um, So there's a little bit of that. And, um, you know, I think with the the whole like sort of, I I think you you mentioned a good thing before about how it's sort of like 127 hours and then a Friday the 13th crashes into it. I thought that that was sort of a fun approach to the story, was that if you watch this film and you didn't know nothing going in, like all you knew, you're going to watch a movie called Never Hike Alone. There was no subtitle. It said anything about Friday the Thirteenth. You would think you were watching a movie about a hiker, and slowly but surely, the film starts to show its hands and say, like, if you really know Friday the Thirteenth, you'll know that when he met, mentions Wessex County, that that's where Friday the Thirteenth is set, and that Camp Crystal Lake is somewhere in Wessex County. If you get a little bit further into into the movie, you see the no trespassing sign, the same one from Part Two. You start to realize he's on the edge of Friday, you know, of Camp Crystal Lake. You see a glimpse of Jason, but you don't really see Jason. But you see enough to know that that's a very Jason-looking-like character. And then when he finds Camp Crystal Lake, you, it's sort of the discovery that, like, whoa, this character is in Friday the 13th. He stumbled across Friday the 13th and, and you know, goes into a lo- the lore about halfway through the film and then starts the second half. So now with the audience realizing where this character is, um, realizing that this guy's in danger, He doesn't know that this this is a true legend, and there is something out there. And the deeper he goes into this camp, the more danger he's putting himself in. But he's willing to do this because of the views. You know, he's going to go around and show show a bunch of crime scenes. That's gonna that's got to be good for some subscribers, right? And he's and you know that peer pressure to sort of keep going forward, even when he gets into the cabin where weird stuff starts happening. And he keeps inching forward and finding things and sort of like all these warning signs that should tell him to go the other way. He keeps going in pursuit of telling this story until he goes too far and he crosses into Jason's web and he gets too close. And up until this moment, Jason has been this lurking sort of watcher viewer which is very early on friday the 13th of like you know the way that betsy palmer plays um pamela in the first film you don't know who the killer is they're very behind the scenes they're watching you don't really see them same thing with part two there's a lot of voyeurism um there's a lot of watching from the shadows in part three to a a certain degree as well so we wanted to bring that back but the moment that that andrew's character kyle crosses through that threshold jason can no longer stay in the shadows He's discovered his mother's head. He discovers that he exists. And he realizes that the secret is no longer a secret. So he must step in and attack. And that's when the film flips. It's That's when Jason is out in the open. And then our, our character is in survival mode, hiding in the bushes, scurrying along the trails and trying to stay hidden under tables and, and ducking behind things and hiding in cabinets because he knows that the predator is out and now on the prowl. So it's kind of a cool you know, going back to 127 hours or any type of survival movie you've ever watched. Like there was that movie with uh, Alec Baldwin and um, Anthony Hopkins with the bear. I can't remember the name of that movie, but that was another one that was sort of like that where these, you know, these, these guys end up in the woods and they realize that like their survival, isn't just them trying to survive their crash, but that there's a animal hunting them and they have to avoid it and kind of change their tune. It was, you know, a lot of that inspiration came from those types of stories and then trying to make that as Grounded as possible, even though it's set in a world where it's a undead being coming after you um, And you know that can't die
1: I think that it was a good call having a male having Kyle, you know be the uh, the 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 lead because it worked because that was why I wanted to ask you that question because Watching it you almost expect a busty chick to be the you know lead and to be kind of dumb and ditzy and it's like for once it's like it's a man and he's actually intelligent because the men in the movies are portrayed as idiots too you know he wasn't mm-hmm. out getting yeah, stoned and being ass. a dumbass yeah, yeah he was yeah he's not out, he's not out getting stoned and being a dumbass and oh no jason's behind me it's like he was prepared and it's like that was a good take on it i think that was part of the hook of watching it, it was like oh this is something different what's going to happen now you know so i definitely think that that was a good hook and um i wanted to ask you what was your motivation behind following part six and keeping tommy jarvis's story alive
2: I mean, Tommy's my favorite, my favorite character ever in the the Friday the 13th franchise outside of Jason. And, you know, when they sort of undid uh, what Tom McLaughlin did with part six, I feel like Tommy's justice was undone. And I, if there was any, like, if you said, they're going to make a Friday the 13th sequel, what do you want? I would have been like, bring Tommy back. I want to see Tommy versus Jason again. They tried to for Jason goes to hell. They couldn't work out the rights. Um, and Tommy has come up as a, as a character in every single version of these stories and always gets shot down. And so I thought it was perfect, sort of like as I developed it, that our story of Tommy is, is so poetic and, and sort of down to earth that you could, I think fans could relate to it. Again, with that absence of Jason, our Tommy is sort of based around like part six happened. Put Jason in the lake. He finally thought, you know, he put the cap on the bottle. Jeannie's back in the bottle. He can go and live his life. And then part seven happens. He's not aware of it. You know, he doesn't know until it's too late. And by the time he shows up, do you think, you know, Sheriff Rick, who we have as our sheriff now is sort of like in the lineage of after Garris died, Rick took over, that do you think Rick would let him anywhere near the crime scene? No. But what did? what do you see at the end of part seven? You see a lot of paramedics and EMTs. Mm-hmm. Walking around the scene, you know, freewheeling, just getting being able to go wherever they want because they're part of the, the crime scene crew. And so Tom got that idea: like, I'm gonna train, become an EMT, and then I can get behind the scenes. Unfortunately for Tom, the next time Jason decides to wake up, he dives he wants to take a boat ride. And so he takes a boat ride out of the city and ends up <laughs> murdering a bunch of people out in the open sea and doing some stuff in Manhattan. But how much of this could really be true? And in this, you know, in the, so now this, this rumor that Jason took over a cruise ship and went out to Manhattan and is now missing, has Tommy sort of on his alarm bells. So Tommy's been spending the last sort of 15 to 20 years. I got to do the math on as far as like where the timeline actually sets. Cause apparently, you know, part eight was in 2001. If you really stretch out the time, um, just so you know how convoluted these movies were, um, that you know in this time between now and then he's been looking for Jason but Jason is his sasquatch Jason has learned his lesson Jason has been flushed out to sea in nuclear waste or whatever that toxic sludge was and he's got a new <laughs> outlook on life which is i'm done like you i'm not chasing anybody anymore i'm not going anywhere i'm going back home i'm going to find my mother's head and i'm going to hunker down and i'm going to take care of me And so the Disappear music video that we did is really about that. It's sort of Jason in this period of time where he comes back from Manhattan. It's some short time after Manhattan. He's built his new costume. He's covered himself up because everything that was in the Paramount era has been washed away and broken. Um, Here's this new Jason, this ghost that lives in the camp, and he just wants peace and he just wants quiet. And when people come and disturb his peace and quiet, he takes them out. But at the end of that video, you see that there's sort of no satisfaction in what he's done. He's just sort of gone through the motions of murdering these kids and just back to doing what I always do. But is this bringing me what I want? And so after that, many years pass. And Tommy has been looking for Jason and looking for Jason and looking for Jason and nothing happens. Then Never Hike in the Snow happens. So you have our character of Mark Hill, who wanders into Camp Crystal Lake, takes an accidental photo of Jason, enacts his revenge because he can't let him get out with that photo because that's going to disturb his peace again, murders this kid. It sets alarm bells off in town. Tommy thinks it's Jason. Rick thinks it's Tommy. And there's a big convergence. And right where Tommy is about to prove to everybody that, that Jason still exists, Rick steps in, cock blocks him, and keeps him from, from proving it and sends him to jail, you know, holds him, holds him for questioning, and then somebody ends up getting killed. So now you flash forward three months later to Never Hike Alone and you have this Tommy which isn't sure about what's up or down anymore. He can't explain, he can't prove it. And when he does, he gets in trouble. Anytime he goes out to the camp, police show up. And they want it, they want answers and they want to know what he's doing out there, and he's at risk of losing his job and all this stuff. So now you have this, this guy who's haunted by this maniac who he sees in his dreams and he sees in everyday life, just like he did in part five. He sees him everywhere. But now he can't prove it. But what happens? One night he gets called out by a forest ranger to go out to you know, Cunningham Road for a lost hiker that seems to be you know, incapacitated, shows up, finds Kyle McLeod, puts him in the back of the ambulance. He's got some really weird injuries. Doesn't really get what's going on. He's flipping out. He's saying all this stuff. He sounds a little crazy. But if there's one thing Tommy knows about Jason, if Jason is involved, if you run into Jason, you're not getting away. So he really doesn't think that this guy could have really done anything. Maybe he just did take a spill. Maybe something else happened to him. He doesn't know. Maybe the guy's just dehydrated and he's been wandering through the forest for a couple of days and we don't know. It isn't until he sees Jason that he realizes that what he's been doing for all these years is is right that he stayed on the path and he was sort of rewarded by saying that like jason is alive but what does jason do first second he sees him is he attacks him and so tommy and 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 him fight he barely survives that attack and thus starts the next part of the tale which is now tommy has the information that he needs that that jason is alive he escapes with the only person who's seen jason other than him in the last 20 years And they have to solve this mystery of like, what is Jason doing? Where is he going? And are we going to be able to survive when he comes looking for us? Because that's exactly what he's going to do. And Jason's on the opposite side where after all these years of being quiet and hunkering down, he was finally bested by somebody. He was bested by Kyle McLeod. And now he's pissed off. And now he's got nothing to lose because he's got video evidence of him. He's got, you know, he's seen him other than Tommy. And if there's two people, they're going to believe both of them. So he might as well just march through town, murder everyone on the way in, and try to find Tommy and Kyle and kill them. And so it creates this different story. And that's what we're working towards when we go into the Never High Cologne 2 saga. And that's why I'm so excited about where we've taken the Tommy character. We feel like this Tommy slots into where Tom McLaughlin left him off um, very well. And, you know, we would have tried to bring back Megan, but Um, the actress who plays Megan does not want to do anything with Friday the 13th these days, uh, which is, uh, sort of unfortunate early version of ever hike alone sort of still had them sort of connected. But the long story short is that after the death of Nick Garris, um, that, uh, you know, she didn't want to leave. Megan didn't want to stay in Camp Crystal Lake. So she wanted to leave, but Tommy felt like he couldn't leave that he needed to stay and protect the town. So that's ultimately what caused their separation. And she went on and lived her life, and he just lived the same life every day, thinking that Jason was going to come back and that it was his duty to be Don Quixote in charge of the windmill. And that's the Never Hike Alone Tommy Jarvis that we want to talk about.
1: Excellent. Um, And uh, I wanted to uh, say that Jason looks incredible in the film. And uh, when I look at him, you know, uh, as a a lifelong Friday the 13th fan, when I look at you as Jason, I get a a remake and Freddy versus Jason vibe off of the costume. Is that Mm -hmm. like, were those part of your inspirations when you designed Jason?
2: Yeah. And oddly enough, I hate both those designs. Um, And the reason why I made (laughs) Ghost Jason was because what I saw in those designs was potential. You know, in one version, he looks like a sad puppy hobo. In another version, he looks like the crow. And Jason is neither of those things. He's not a sad baby hobo and he's not the crow. He is Jason. He is the forest. He is, you know, everything that is, you know, the surrounding woods and lake and things like that. And that he wouldn't think to be a stylized, slick looking Jason. And there was no reason to pile five coats on top of him. Like he doesn't need a whole layer system. And so what I tried to do was take the concept of a jacket. But take our favorite version of Jason, which is part four, uh, part six, you know, part three, you know, part seven. Great choices. Three, you know, in all those designs, there are certain things. But one thing that, that is that is pretty that is always consistent is, you know, the, Dickie, uh, the Sears workshirt top, the brown, the brown or tan or like light gray pants, you know, and boots. Very simple. Just, you know, it's a very simple design. So what I thought was if we could find a jacket that mirrored what the Sears work shirt did. But gave a little bit more bulk. So it was a jacket. It did hang down, and they could do the little whooshy things that we moved around that like the jacket would fly out and stuff like that. And underneath, we would do some sort of sweater, something that was form fitting, that was tight, that wouldn't like bubble up and be big. Um, We chose, you know, olive green as the jacket color, we chose duck brown as the pants, black boots. And that was a good color scheme because it matches the forest. The, the forest was very much that olive green, sort of to you, to all the pine needles, um, and even the um, the shingles of the camp. The brown very much matched with the brown of the pants on, on, on the bark of the tree, or whether it was the paneling in, in in the in the in the cabins. Um, the gray shirt is a neutral gray. Splatter it with blood, just give you know give it some cuts, you know, make it look sort of like lived in and used. Um, and then there was the mask. And so when it came to the mask, which was the most important part and which is the most important part of Jason, what we wanted was a costume that didn't distract you from his face. And so my biggest gripe with 2009 and Freddie versus Jason is there was so much to look at him that you never really like, all you want to see is this. And that if something on his body is distracting your eye to look at it or want to look it up and down and kind of see it, you're doing it wrong. Because that's, not the, that's what not makes Jason like not Even like part six, which I love, the utility belt, we didn't need that. We didn't need the yellow, bright yellow gloves. Like, show me some gross hands and give me some cool mask stuff. And so we designed the mask from the ground up. I wanted something that was based on um, a mask that you would have found in the 1960s. So one of the things that while I was doing research on masks was that when I got a lot of the reproductions, they were thin, plastic, flimsy masks. And I said, there is nothing scary about this. And when I turn my head, I can see that it's a thin, plastic, flimsy mask, and it's cheap. And I can't believe I paid $100 for this thing, but I guess that's what it costs for one of these things. And so you know, I raised some money. I was working as a production manager in animation at the time. I had some spare cash, and I contacted CFX, which I bought the deformed hood and deformed hands from. Um, for my hood and thing for silicone, because that's that's ended up what we we're researching that looked good. I said, I want to design a custom mask and I want to design it around some of these like Jacques Plant masks from uh, the 1960s. There were a few other things that were a little bit thicker, made of plaster. I was like, if we can get something like that that's mixed with the with the with the mask that we know, but something that has a little bit more of a sinister shape, a little bit more of a dingy look to it, like it's been weathered, like it's been kept in a box for decades. Um, I want something like that. And so they gave us, like, the base version of the Ghost Hawk, um, you know, just in the sculpted version. We worked on that back and forth, me and a guy named Brett Morris at CFX. Um, I did draw overs. We, you know, adjusted the height of, like, different parts of it, um, the shape of different parts of it, the eye holes. Um, You know, we came up with that sort of, like, what I think is more of a sinister-looking, like, straight right-angle approach, where, like, everything's got a sharp angle on it as far as, like, even the the circles and, and things like that. And then it came time for chevrons. And we were talking about what we would do. Do we put the chevron on the mask? Do we not put the chevron on the mask? And when I thought about it and I thought about the concept of sort of what the mask represents, what the mask represents in different movies, the lineage of the mask, that it started off with three chevrons. And then by part four, the two cheeks are basically gone. Part five, they're gone. Part six, they're not there. Part seven, they're not there. Or no, then part seven, they're not really there. They're kind of worn off. And then in part eight, they're flipped around because it's a brand new mask. And in part five, we have Roy and he's got blue chevrons, which, you know, signifies that he's an imposter. And so I kind of got this idea during the process that we're a fan film. We're not official. We haven't earned our chevrons. So we're not going to put them on. And we're going to leave it blank. And actually leaving the blank look ended up becoming one of the best decisions that we've made. Instead of having a chevron, we have a very unique piece of damage on the cheek, the F, that I consider our chevron. That's how you know it's a ghost hawk, because of that piece of damage that everybody sort of like recreates. And some of the other damage that's around the mask. And eventually the fans you know, nicknamed it the ghost hawk. You know, We nicknamed Jason Ghost Jason. Um, and it felt right. It, it feels like this is what a specter of Camp Crystal Lake would wear. And it was our own definitive look Um, and the way it all sort of came together. um, You know, I, I, it was, it was really by trial and error, but at the end of the day, it was, it's definitely one of my proudest things is the fact that we created a brand new Jason um, from scratch and didn't have fans absolutely hate us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Like I said, Jason looked incredible in the film. And uh, I wanted to ask you about the ending. Um, The character named Axel in the back of the ambulance, who's looking at the nudie mag, is that the, uh, is that like the son of Axel from like part four or it like, is, is that supposed to be, that's an assumption I'm making. Cause I brought yes. that up to John. I'm like, the dude's name was Axel and he made like a nudie remark about a magazine. So I was like, let me ask that. So
2: you ready for the deep dive on this one. So there's lots of things like this in the never hike alone that if you ask the right question, there's a story behind it and the story behind Axel McCulley, who is the, the paramedic, the end of, of never hike alone. If you recognize the name McCully in part five there's another pervert his name's billy mccully he's the guy who picks up uh, donna from from the diner and he's you know snow flurries mm, up you know billy. <laughs> so my my theory is billy had a sister and she worked at the hospital and he was stooping <laughs> her too the same thing with nurse morgan so in fact the other the other um the other nurse, um, or the other EMT in the scene, her name is Denny Morgan. So that was after Nurse Morgan. But that Billy, okay. that that Axel is the son of Axel and Billy McCulley's City, sister, and that's why he's like a super pervert. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, just it's the little things, you know what I mean? Like it just little fun, little tidbits. I figured we'd cram the two funniest, like the two funniest perverts in in the series together into one.
1: I'm glad I asked that question because I'm sure there's not a lot of people out there that know that. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah,
0: it's a good one.
1: Um, Well, uh, okay. So uh, I'm going to go into Never Hike in the Snow real quick, and then I'm going to send you over to John. Um, So, Never Mm -hmm. Hike in the Snow, Uh, now that you've done two of these, I know you're working on more. um, How do you feel that they pushed you as a director, and what was the hardest shot to achieve?
2: Oh, geez. Never Hiking the Snow was super challenging. Um, it was a different production. With Never Hiking Alone, it was very much a free wheel. Like I had one actor. We could, hey, Andrew, can you come out this weekend? Like We're going to go film three more scenes. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I got an idea. I built this thing. Let's go do it. For this, it was more like I have to get 35 people on the same page and on the same schedule to come out for a weekend for two days of shooting um, and execute a series of, of, of scenes with multiple characters with more production people because we actually need to do professional sound now. We actually have to do, uh, you know, we got camera grip and lighting and, and we're shooting in the forest, I mean, in the winter, so we needed a motorhome, so I needed a production team to to arrange all this stuff and keep everybody safe and give um, the special effects people, like, room to work because a Never Hike Alone... We ran into a lot of trouble with Kelsey having to work out of like basically the refrigerator of um, there's like a big walk-in refrigerator at the camp, and so we placed her in there. But things got so cold that you know silicone ripped, stuff wasn't sticking. Um, we had a lot of challenges that delayed us on set the first time. So we thought it was a smart investment to rent um, a production trailer where we were able to do our you know all of our applications. Um, So there was a lot more logistics with this one. And when I'm directing these films, I'm directing, I'm producing, I'm I'm first ADing, I'm playing Jason. So I'm I'm very much ingrained with everything that's going on in the day, along with the creative. And, you know, having to balance all that, you know, we were staying at a camp up there um, in the middle of the winter. um, And the biggest challenge really on the the project was the fact that we went up, when we were driving up the mountain, we had no snow. We had a film called Never Hike in the Snow, but the ground was bare. And we had nothing. And all we had going for us was that there was a, um, is that there was this uh, storm on, on the horizon. And we didn't, like, listen, a storm on the horizon can mean a thousand different things. It could be a storm, or it could be a flurry, and then it goes away. And we got up on the first day of shooting. It was around 4.30 a.m. It was first light, and the snow was already coming down. And so the opening of Never Hike in the Snow is all shot between 5 and like 7 a.m., us chasing the storm around that lake and all these different areas of where we were shooting and getting that entire opening sequence. Um, There's a few shots that we used on the second weekend that we peppered in to kind of extend extend it out a little bit. Um, But we did that. Then the sun came up and everything melted. And we went, okay, what do we do now? And then looked at the forecast. The forecast said, okay, you got another storm coming at 9 a.m. And so everybody else got to set around um, 8.15, 8.30. I was already out where we were shooting, sort of kind of picking out how we were going to do the the bow and arrow sequence. And, you know, I said, hey, we're going to wait until 9 a.m. Once we get to 9 a.m., we'll figure out whether we're going to change this name to Never Hike in the Fog or, you know, The Ghost (laughs) of Crystal Lake or something else. Like, we're going to have to change the name. And while I was having this conversation about, like, what we were going to do and while we were counting it down, there was, like, a all of a sudden there was, like, a silence. Like, nobody was saying anything on set. We were kind of all kind of in our own heads. And you could feel the wind shift. And you could feel the wind or you could hear the wind, like, punch the trees. Like, there was a point where, like, all of a sudden, like, this gust of wind came through and it, like, pushed the trees really hard. And it hit them. Like, it was weird. Like, I've never seen or heard anything like that before it was eerie and then the snow just started to come down and i turned around and i was like we got to start shooting so the first things we shot were you know cortland running up into that wide shot where like the snow is just coming down and we're behind the bush and he runs up and he's looking around with his keys and so we just started shooting right there um, and then we had to move into the bow and arrow sequence, which, as we were shooting it, more and more snow was collecting. We had um, a motorized uh, articulated jib head. So we had like a, a piece of equipment that would lift the camera, like if we wanted to, 15 feet in the air, and we could move the camera around however we wanted to. And we used that as that long, big sweeping take of like getting Jason pulling the bow back and doing all that stuff. Um, and we, I mean, honestly, we were chasing that storm all morning. I think we got we shot all the way up until about noon or 1 p.m. Um, or actually, we shot all the way until like 2 or 3 p.m. And that storm stayed over us. We were able to get that coverage. Um, we shot most of that scene out. And then we had to go and get back to the camp and shoot the scene where um, Tom shows up at the camp and uh, the cops start chasing him. That was when the storm continued. So we got more storm coverage that night. And then basically the next day, we had to shoot everything out um, with no storm and racing the sun, melting on the snow for like Jason chopping Cortland, the mouth with the mask, uh, with the ax and dragging him off. And then, you know, Tommy showing up and writing Jason on the hood of the cop car and running away. Um, and then all the fight scenes where, you know, Mabry, you know, tackles, um, Tommy and like rolls away and, and, and Rick arrests him and all that stuff. So getting those scenes was the most complicated and the most challenging because we were racing time we were racing weather we were dealing with weather we had to delay one scene because we couldn't get the cars down the path to the camp because it was all icy um, and it was a very stressful weekend and then after that you know doing the scenes with Anna um, with the interview between uh, Sheriff Rick and, and Diana Hill uh, we were at a, a house in Lake Arrowwood um, in Lake Arrowhead which really wasn't that uh, complicated of a production. Um, It was very much all interiors. We were able to shoot that out pretty much in a night and a half. And then the following weekend, uh, we went out to Flagstaff, Arizona, where we shot all the sequences in um, the cabin and at that camp, which, uh, you know, with Cortland's demise and, um, or Cortland catching a a glimpse of Jason and uh, deputy Mabry, you know, meeting his demise in the attic and all the other fun stuff that was there. Uh, By the time we got out there, a lot of the snow had melted. So we spent a lot of the pre-production during the daylight, um, shoveling snow and spreading it throughout the camp, lining the edges of the building there as if there was a snowstorm that had happened um, and, and that it was still kind of dying off. And that when we pick up with Cortland at the beginning of the movie, that that's the storm coming. And so, it wasn't what I had originally intended. You know, I originally intended to be full whiteout the entire time. That, it seems to be the easiest way to write this film. But when I looked at it and sort of tried to find meaning in what we did, what I could say is that if you watch Never Hike in the Snow and you pay attention to sort of the underlayer, it's sort of like the storm came and the storm went and it took the boy with it. And that's sort of the story of this storm, that this storm came and that Jason is this storm and it took this boy. And now it's left another mother, another single mother, childless with no answers, which is a other thematic theme with Friday the 13th. And um, that's gonna come into play. Diana Hill is a very important character in our story. When we do Never Hike Alone 2, she will be back. Her story is still continuing. It's three months later, she's still missing her kid. No one's given her answers and she's gonna get some answers in in this movie um, through the process of the story and become a vital part of it where she gets caught between everybody, between Tommy and Rick, Kyle, um, everything that's going on she's the one who's at this hospital who's going to receive them and have to sort of deal with you know all that they're bringing with them so it's kind of um, you know her her story is definitely you're going to want to you're going to want to keep an eye out on her as we progress through through each installment
1: well uh, <clears throat> speaking of uh, the sequels i wanted to ask you what can you tell us about them and when can we expect them to come out
2: so or the original plan was to do three sequels, which were going to be three episodes, all 25 minutes long or 20, 45 minutes long, depending on the episode. Um, but obviously we had a big pandemic last year and that threw us for a loop. We were supposed to do more crowdfunding, shoot over the summer, do Never Hike in the Snow, then have Never Hike Alone 2 right behind it so we can continue it like a web series. Um and since we weren't able to do that, our plan now is to combine all three episodes back into a full-length full feature film, which was the original idea anyway. Um, and we're going to try to crowdfund for that uh, this fall, sometime in October or uh, November, depending on... i got to finish the Never Hike on the Snow Blu-rays, which I have about 600 left to do. Um, and then um, we're going to have to set up that Never Hike, Never Hike Alone Indiegogo. And then... Um, probably shoot it spring 2022 and hopefully release it in October of 2020.
0: That's good to hear. And I'm uh, going back to that uh, scene with the uh, bow and arrow. I just have to say that like that chase that was so beautifully shot and then it just the murder at the end, is just so brutal and the red just plays really well with the snow.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, the, the, the film was built around that kill and it all started with that. That was the idea. And that was actually an idea that stemmed all the way back to the original Never Hike Alone. Um, that was Kyle McLeod's original fate. In the very first script of Never Hike Alone, Kyle takes an axe to the mouth. And we even did camera tests for it. And I have stuff from like 2016 where we're thinking about doing it. Um, the story got rewritten and it turned into Jason popping out of the side of the lake and crushing his head. And that obviously turned into a dream sequence, which then led to the ambulance. Um, and that's why we're here today. But... Um, but yeah, that that sequence was was something I've been waiting to do for a long time and I thought, hey, if we're going to do a, a never hike in the snow, Friday the 13th Jason in the snow, we needed something that spilled a lot of blood in the snow. And what is snow, tha- you know, what's like a snow-themed thing that we can do that you know, isn't necessarily like Jason stabbing somebody with an icicle but more of something that's like a big grand murder that you would want in a normal Friday the 13th film, but is amplified by the snow because of all the blood that it spills. And so we came up with taking that ax kill and calling it the blood angel. So if you look at it, he's spread out like a snow angel and the blood's flying out and the blood are his wings. So um, it was sort of like a cool thing to do there and, and do something we hadn't seen before. We know we've seen Jason fire a bow in 2009 um, but it was sort of kind of cool to see Jason use the bow to slow somebody down so he could then pick up the finishing weapon and then come at them with an axe. I don't think we've ever seen Jason chop someone in the mouth, um, and I've very rarely seen that in other films. I've seen a couple of the films, Dislodge the Jaw, do some things in there, but it was kind of cool to actually stick the thing in the mouth and dislodge the jaw. Um, and then at the end of the film, obviously, uh, with the shotgun thing, was another first, um, which I will clarify, Jason did not pull the trigger. He just pushed the gun up before the guy could fire and he ended up blowing his own head off. So it's sort of um, sort of a, a shared kill, I guess you could say, but but uh, Jason just sort of did it to avoid getting shot himself and ended up getting that guy to blow his own head off, which became uh, another fun little uh, thing to do on set.
0: And uh, Never Hike in the Snow, like you said, takes place three months prior to Never Hike Alone. What made you decide to go with the prequel first instead of just like a straight-up sequel?
2: Well, the straight-up sequel is Never Hike Alone 2. And unfortunately at the time, it was sort of like, God, it's such a big idea. Like Never Hike Alone 2 is such a big idea. How do I execute this with $50,000? Because that's all I've raised so far. And I sort of needed something to to prove that we could go even bigger. And that if we were only going to get $50,000, what could I do? The problem was is that the ending to Never Hike Alone 2 is so definitive, there is no sequel to that. That is the end. That is is for us the end of Friday the 13th. And if we rewound the clock, there was sort of this answer that I wanted to give everybody, which was what has Jason been doing in between Friday the 13th, part eight, because I don't count anything a new line, and this movie? And what is the usual fate For somebody like Kyle McLeod, who has gone to Camp Crystal Lake and not made it out because originally Never Hike Alone was supposed to be the stories about those characters. When I originally conceptualized Never Hike Alone, there were going to be a series of different stories about different people who went into Camp Crystal Lake and never came out. They all had a different story and they all had a different journey and they all had different interactions. But the story was is that if you go into Camp Crystal Lake, you disappear, you go missing and that's. All that is nobody ever goes looking for you and they're never going to find you because that's what happens if you break the rule. And I wanted to show what, what Jason was dealing with. I wanted to show where Tommy fit into the scenario that these characters were active and all these things were going on, but I didn't want to interfere with what we were trying to do with never hike alone. So we had to come up with an idea that had Tommy involved, but not interact with Jason. Because in Never Hike Alone, he hadn't seen Jason in, in 15, 16 years. So if we had him see him now, we would have had to go into a whole final battle sequence where he would have had to defeat Jason and think that he defeated Jason three months ago, only to have him come back three months later, which wasn't in our budget to keep shooting. Um, that just It didn't make sense at that time. And I, I feel like him having that moment in Never Hike Alone is more impactful than trying to do that Never Hike in the Snow. So we wanted to show how... Jason has been able to avoid Tommy all these years, which we do explore that more in never hike alone too. Um, yeah. And just tell like a fresh story, like just let this be a, its own thing that happened in the winter and be its own self-contained story. This own blip in time of a Friday the 13th of there was this time, you know, where two people went missing in town and nobody had answers. And that's what it's like living in Crystal Lake. This is how Jason has been able to get away with this for all these years. This is how Jason succeeds. This is the first movie where Jason has ever won, or I guess not a movie, but an episode where Jason wins. This is the beginning of, this, of, of you know, the season. So the bad guy wins. And now the good guys have to battle their way back and battle the bad guy at the end in order to you know be the hero that wins the day. But we wanted to introduce a lot of, you know, elements of like what is going through Jason's head. So the scenes with uh, Pamela and Jason show a little bit more into what happens in these, in Camp Crystal Lake when no one's around, what does Jason see? How does Jason pass the time? What is motivating Jason? And we thought it was important to remind people that this all started because a mother lost her son and that really he's answering to the spirit of his mother's vengeance. And, you know, when he, he, when he gets to a point in his sort of journey of being the arbiter of, you know, the death curse, that there may be moments as some, you know, as, you know, when he died as an 11-year-old boy that maybe, maybe he's sick of doing this and maybe he doesn't remember why he's doing this. And so the curse, you know, brings his mother back to remind him why he does this and that if he's ever feeling bad or if he's ever feeling like, you know, he doesn't understand why that she comes back and comforts him and reminds him why that's why when he wakes back up from his trance and attacks um, and attacks Mabry, he's so brutal because he's attack He's, he's protecting his mother again. It's almost like it, he doesn't even have to think about it when his mother's in danger and his secrets in danger, he just goes in to that fight or flight mode and does what he has to do. And he does it as swiftly as possible. And so that's what makes never hike alone. So impressive is the fact that he does this to Kyle. But Kyle survives, and no matter what he does to Kyle, he keeps going. So not only was it to show how powerful our Jason really is, but also to show how, you know, versatile and and um, what's the word, sort of self um, self sufficient that Kyle was, and to make him to show that like he's not just some final girl. He's actually you know you know just just not some victim, but like he's earned his final girlhood. That, that he's a survivor, and that's the difference between anyone else who's wanted in here before and now the characters we're going to see moving forward in the Never High Cologne 2 um, yeah, series.
0: Yeah And uh, we actually got Vinny Guastafaro back in the role of Rick Cologne. Uh, we talked to him for our 35th anniversary and he was such a fun person to talk to. Uh, how was it working with him on set?
2: You know, Vinny's a spark plug. You know, he brings a lot of energy to set. Um, he loves acting. He loves the character of Rick Cologne. Um, you know, he tells me all the time about You know, this is the character he still gets letters for, you know, he's done, he did Shocker and he did a bunch of, you know, episodes of Law and Order and, you know, all these different shows. But Friday the 13th is the thing that he mostly gets remembered for. And him and Tom have such a good rivalry and friendship that, um, having them both on set was a lot of fun. So they were equipping with each other and making fun of each other and using their sort of, you know, horsing around that they were doing offset and bringing that to, to set, um. A lot of the you know, a lot of the lines they improvised, you know, moved things around. Obviously we we're gonna have Vinny say ya bang. Um, no, of course. but you know I had uh, I used it in a way that was like I had an early version of the script where I was like that's what he tells Deputy Mabry. when he's like when he wants it, like instead of saying capiche he goes, Ya bang. And then <laughs> Deputy Mabry would be like Ya bang. You know, he's like, that's how he says "capiche." And Vinny was like, ah, I was thinking I would deliver it here. And, and and so we moved things around and he brought a lot to that, you know? And, you know, there was a, you know, it was obviously a long discussion about, um, Vinny sort of like adjusting the the role of Rick because Rick just isn't like the Rick we remember from part six, like, ah, I'm running around and got my laser scope and I'm, you know, I'm just an asshole the whole time. It was like, Rick's a sheriff now. Rick's old. Now Rick has family. Rick has, You know, stuff that's going on. And he can't just run around and be crazy young Rick. He's got to be older wise Rick. So he picks his moves very carefully. And he's very sort of like keeping his cards close to his chest. But it isn't until Tommy shows up that he sort of loses his cool. And Tommy is what brings that young Rick out in him, what brings that energy out in him. Because very much up until that moment, he's very subdued. He's trying to put the pieces together. He's trying to understand what happened. And by the time Tommy shows up, Rick has discovered that this kid has wandered out to Camp Crystal Lake, and there's probably a good chance he's never going to be seen from again. But he doesn't know how to tell his mother yet, and he sort of kind of let time do that for him, that he'll just keep playing this thing of like, your son's missing, we're still looking for him, things aren't looking good, sorry, he must have got lost in the woods. Deep down feeling, god damn it, that Jarvis must have something to do with this. (laughs) you know and trying to put those pieces together so when Tommy shows up on his radar that night he feels like this is it like i finally got him red handed like we we got him at the camp like we're going to discover all this stuff and we're going we got him dead to rights and unfortunately for rick he doesn't inform his deputy about what's going on and he doesn't want to bring his deputy into the loop because he doesn't want to explain himself And he doesn't want to try to like get this guy all riled up about some folklore legend that he doesn't even believe in because Rick has never seen Jason. Rick has only seen Tommy. What, how, how crazy Tommy is about this Jason stuff. And he still feels that Tommy orchestrated this whole thing. And it's always been Tommy. And, you know, he's trying to kind of keep that card close. So no one screws up his investigation, but it ends up, you know, leaving his deputy with these questions. And so the deputy ends up sort of wanting to answer these questions on his own solves the case. I mean, he finds the boy, which, you know, everyone's looking for this boy. He finds him. He solves the case. He finds Jason. He does exactly what Tommy wanted to do, but unfortunately he's not as equipped as Tommy is and he doesn't know what he's dealing with. And so he ultimately suffers this fate because he isn't given the information he needs to succeed. He's given, he's, he's left without the information he needs to survive and thus becomes another lost victim of the camp. And so as you'll see this play out without too many spoilers, I mean, obviously when someone else goes missing while someone's in custody, that kind of absolves the other person from saying that there's anything wrong. Um, And Rick's plan backfires. And Tommy's let out and let back into the world with a warning. Um, And the two go about their day and there's nothing either of them can do. Both of them have failed their town. And that's sort of the lesson in Never Hike in the Snow is that because Tommy and Rick don't get along, and because they're not working together, the rest of the of the town suffers. and so in one way, because Rick doesn't want to deal with Jason, people will continue to go missing if they cross the fence. If you ask Rick, hey, if they go over that fence, that's their problem. Hey, I put up the sign. I built this thing, you know, like the Wessex County national uh, you know um, What's it called? A wildlife preserve, which we established in Never Hike Alone. Um, you know, Kyle says like, oh, this whole land was dial- donated to a wildlife preserve. Um, it's on, you know, the, the, the warning signs and some of the, the camp signs that are over there. We changed, changed the camp stuff so people think it's just a wildlife preserve where people can't go. And he feels that if anybody goes beyond that fence, whatever happens is up to them. And Tommy is on the side of the fact that we have to go and storm the castle and defeat the dragon because the dragon is killing people and we're not looking and if we don't stop it people are going to continue to die and rick is more along the lines of like i feel like you're the dragon and you're just doing this as a big charade or if there is a dragon why would we go poke it and wake it up you dummy you know like just let it be let a sleeping dog lie and so because they're they sort of battle with this mentality of the two sides um bad things continue to happen and it isn't going to be until either until somebody does something, that um, it's going to do it. And unfortunately, Tommy's right for the fact that Kyle MacLeod comes along and upsets Rick's plan, which is, oh, as long as we don't disturb the dragon, the dragon won't come out. Well, Kyle MacLeod disturbs the dragon, and the dragon's pissed and it's coming to town. And so there's nothing that either of them did to it. It's something that they thought that they could avoid or that Rick thought that he could avoid for all these years, but now he's going to have to pay the price for it because he let that dragon sleep in his backyard all these years and he never did anything about it.
0: Yeah, we're definitely looking forward uh, to the rest of the film. Uh, what projects do you have coming
2: up? Um Mumpstown Films has a, has a lot of projects coming up. In fact, we just had one release called Jason Rising. It's another Friday the 13th fan film, which I highly recommend. I'm a producer and uh, co-writer on it. I also have a small bit part at the end of the film, if you want to watch me um, play, a, play, a, play a cop, which is pretty fun. Um, it was done by James Sweet and Carl Winery, uh, two filmmakers out of Portland, Oregon. did a fantastic job um i went up there and and worked with them you know over the course of about two and a half years and and the film released on august 13th um 2021 and they're already up to two hundred and fifty thousand views in like a couple of weeks which is super impressive i've never seen another fan film move that fast through the ranks so I'm, i'm very proud of them um we have another original film that I'm, I'm producing, writing, and starring in, again, called Judy. It's directed by a good friend of mine, Renee Rivas, out of Flagstaff, California. We have our final day of filming on September 10th. And then we're hopefully going to be uh, – we're going to fast-track post-production and try to get into a few festivals this year. We actually have a crowdfund going on right now on Indiegogo, Judy, the sh- uh, short horror film. So if you look up Womp Stump Films and the Judy film, uh, you'll find us up there. We're still taking uh, – the the campaign ended, but we're in demand. So you can still get your name in the credits. You can still get a digital uh, screener of the film once it's completed and lots of other prizes. We still have some producer perks. Um, and other things up there for anyone who's interested, um, coming up, we have another fan film called Dylan's new nightmare, where I'm working with a filmmaker by the name of Cecil Laird out of Phoenix, uh, Arizona. Uh, it's a sequel to, uh, Wes Craven's new nightmare. where We're continuing that storyline with the actual Dylan Porter, Miko Hughes returning to reprise his role as, as himself, as an adult version of himself, still dealing with sort of fears of Freddie and that fear sort of resurrecting that dream demon, uh, the dream demon Freddie that Wes created for the new nightmare. Um, is resurrecting through uh, an older Miko who is now in his, you know, his, you know, his middle ages and having that existential dread of existence. And Freddy is feeding off that fear and uh, using it to come back into the real world and get another chance to sort of come among, you know, the real people. So that's going to be a lot of fun. One we already crowdfunded for that. We raised a good amount of money, um, and we're going to shoot that. Uh, hopefully, this uh, either. Fall or winter or early spring next year, uh, depending on everyone's schedules. Um, COVID has really kept us from going on that one. And we have a, our Freddie is going to be played by Dave McRae. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with Dave, but he's a fantastic voice actor and actor. He directed um, a fan film called "It's Me, Billy." But he's up in Canada, and so he can't necessarily travel down yet without like really putting his work at risk. Until that kind of clears up, then we're going to start planning out about three months out from that that we'll go out and do the film. Uh, Nora Hewitt, who did uh, the effects for Never Hike in the Snow, is doing the effects for Dylan's New Nightmare. She's building the brand-new Freddy face. Um, we have a really cool custom glove, a lot of really cool stuff. Um, if you want to be a part of the project, I would say contact Cecil Lard at the Horror Show. Uh, or go to the Indiegogo. There is uh, there's contact information there, and you can definitely help us bring that project to life. Um, man, I got a lot of them. So I got another animated film. Uh, it's a short film called Ghost Chicken, about a vegan restaurant haunted by the ghost of a chicken and the young girl, and one young girl who's determined to figure out why. Um, about halfway through the animatic process on that, it's it's really fun. Um, I would say it's sort of like a Rick and Morty meets Daria uh, sort of tone. Very crass, fun. Uh, vulgar, um, a lot of comedy. It has horror elements, but it's mostly a comedy film. Um, I used to work in animation for a long time, so it's been a really, it's really been fun to kind of set back and go back to that world and tell a story in that world. Something I've always wanted to do. Um, we'll probably be crowdfunding for that at some point. We're still just in pre-production, trying to get some stuff done and, and figure out those things. But I'm really excited about this project, and I want people to be um, aware that it will be coming out probably sometime next year. Um, and then finally, of course, Never Hike Alone Two. Uh, we're we're going to, like I said, we're going to try and crowdfund for that later this year. Um, we're going to have to raise somewhere between two hundred dollars and $300,000. Um, and if you had asked me to do that two and a half, three years ago, I would have laughed in your face. But after the success of Never Hike in the Snow, we raised almost $120,000 on crowdfunding um, for a small short that I think people were a little confused by. Um, but I think if we put Never Hike Alone 2 on the poster and people see that we're going to do the full feature, I believe that there are enough Friday the 13th fans out there to support what we are trying to do. Um, we're not trying to get a bunch of people like a few people to give us $50,000. What my dream is is that 10,000 Friday the 13th fans show up and give us 20 bucks. And I think there are that many Friday the 13th fans out in the world who um, would love our work. Um, I believe that there's more than 10,000 Tommy Jarvis fans around the world. Um, and if people want to see the true blue story of Tommy Jarvis find its way to the screen, um, the way the studios would never do it, this is how it's going to have to be done. And we're going to need a, a big unified effort by the Friday the 13th fan base to, to make it happen. And so that's sort of what we're preparing for um, and to see if we can raise that amount of money without getting sued. Um, but we know that if we can raise that, um, you know, a lot of it's going to go into crowdfunding because there's going to be a lot of perks that are going to ship. But at the end of the day, we will then use that budget to break out, make as much as we can. Um, if we have enough, we will finish. If we don't, we'll go as far as we need. And then we'll come back to the fan and say, Hey, I got three quarters of the way through. Now we're doing this, this, and this. It's all figured out. I just need fifty more grand. Let's do it. Let's sell some more Blu-rays. Let's sell some more VHSs. Let's, you know, get a few more executive producers and get this thing done. And, you know, hopefully by October of um, 2022, we could return to the Telluride horror show with our full feature version of never hike alone 2. And, give fans the finale, the, you know, the finale, the true final chapter of Friday the 13th that would feel like closure we've never had before. And, you know, closure for Jason, closure for Tommy, Um, finish the story of Kyle McLeod and Diana Hill and Rick Cologne and sort of bring this series to a place where, okay, now we finally have an answer to what happened to Paramount Jason. If the studios want to reboot Jason now, at least we have this. They can't screw this up now. You know, they can't they can't make a mess of this. We finally have something that, that we can call our own as fans, and it took the fans to do it because the studios never figured it out and everyone was too greedy to come together and, and make it happen. So we did as fans, you know, get our favorite characters back, tell their story, and do it in a way that's gonna satisfy fans for decades and years to come.
0: I gotta ask you about the, the Freddy one. Um what is your favorite nightmare on Elm Street movie?
2: You know, it's funny, I love Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two because I'm not the biggest sort of Freddy person. Like, I'm a Jason guy, and Jason's my number one. Freddy versus Jason, I was rooting against Freddy the whole time. I was like, get out of here, you little child diddler. Like, <laughs> drop an elbow on him, Jason. Like, I was so happy when he beat him. But, you know, I think Friday, Fr- Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two was the first one I think I saw. And it's scared, like Freddy coming out of him and like being him, like it didn't make much sense at the end and I never caught on to like all the other messages that are (laughs) hidden within the film. But I just thought that Freddy was so creepy and scary. Like the bus sequence, when you're a child and every day you start your day on the bus, like Nightmare on Elm Street part two is just insanely scary. And so I love the first one, obviously. Dream Warriors is obviously awesome. I'm also, I grew up at that age and sorry, I love Freddy's dead. I love when he's playing the video game. I love that it's just like beyond stupid. Um, And then a lot of that, I love some of the scenes in there. It's not a great movie. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It ruins the lore and the 3D that they tried to use with those glasses when it's the flying little Freddy sperms does not look good, Um, but but I, I have a soft spot for it. I mean, you know, when it really comes down to it, um, you know, I'm pretty pretty even on Freddie across the whole thing. Obviously, like, Dream... You know, the Dream Child. Um, and then, you know, what was the follow-up to Dream Warriors? What was that one called? Dream Child? Was Dream... Oh, Dream Master? Like, is it was the, the Dream... Dream Master. The yeah, Dream yeah. Master, and then Dream Child. Yeah, those two, I would say, are, are low on the totem pole, even though the kills got a lot more inventive. But one and two are definitely my favorites. And then, after re-watching... Um, Wes Grayman's New Nightmare, definitely uh, a new affinity for that film, you know, 90s horror. I think, I believe New Nightmare came out right before Scream, right? And it was Wes sort of starting his his turn to meta, of of making horror films meta and bringing it into our world and telling stories in our world, which I thought was really clever. Um, And, you know, being tasked with producing the film and having to do my research, I really you know, I really kind of saw what Wes was going with that. And so that's sort of my approach with, you know, coaching Cecil through this project of, uh, as a producer and helping him set this up is really keeping it on tone with what Wes set up and what the, fri- you know, and what I always say Friday the 13th, cause it's my default, but Nightmare on Elm Street um, series and just sort of keeping it consistent and delivering again, what is expected of any production that we're associated with that it, it looks professional and that, You know, fans aren't going to be taken out of it because there's bad sound, or because someone doesn't know how to light a scene, or because someone doesn't know how to block characters, or 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 shoot coverage. That you know, our directors go in with a you know a whole playbook of here's how you cover scenes, here's how we get our here's how we get our day, here's how we do this how here's how we execute this VFX so it does it right. You know, this is all coming from experience that I have doing this for other productions on a professional level. Now showing amateurs who don't have access to the professional equipment, how we can recreate what we do on larger sets for a fraction of the cost. And so that's sort of like our claim to fame, I guess, here is the fact that we're able to sort of spend the money in the right places, but we don't have to spend as much as a giant production would. We do it just enough so we can get the quality we need out of the camera and then let the story and the acting speak for itself.
0: Yeah. I would have to say that new, new nightmare is probably actually my favorite Night, uh, nightmare on elm street in the series. And uh lastly where where can people find you on social media?
2: So you can find us on Womp stomp films, W O M P S T O M P F I L M S. Uh we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram and we're of course on YouTube. That's where you can find all of our material from Never Hike Alone, we have original projects like Pathosis and Imagine. Um, Anyone who's a fan of Never Hike Alone, Cortland Gordon um, and some friends of ours made something called The Lost Tapes, which a lot of people don't know about. It's a completely found footage story that isn't really accurate to Friday the 13th in some degree, Uh, but there is the Friday the 13th elements. It's shot at the original uh, Never Hike Alone camp. And so, if you want to check that out on our page, we have behind the scenes of how we made Never Hike Alone. And if you pay attention in about the next month or so, once I get the rest of these Blu-rays out, we're going to start posting the behind the scenes for Never Hike in the Snow uh, episodes of Trail Junkies, which star Kyle McLeod as the Trail hung, <laughs> the the Trail Junkie uh, himself. Um, we have bloopers, and um, obviously, we're to, we might try in a way to release our commentary tracks and things like that, so people can get a little bit more insight to the films and how we made them and what the um, sort of some of the the inspiration and, and direction that we have with some of our sequences
0: well we definitely appreciate you joining us today and we're big fans of the series and and we can't we can't wait for the next one
2: great i appreciate that yeah and definitely fans keep an eye out and uh we'll be uh hopefully releasing something in the next uh, few few weeks
0: yep. and thank you again and uh we'll talk to you soon
2: yeah thank you for having me it was a great time
0: take care man thank you Thanks to all the horror hounds and smokers out there for tuning in. Thank you to Vincent DeSanti for joining us today. And uh, we're big fans of the Never Hike series. We can't wait for the sequels. But I'm going to need him to get up more up to speed on his nightmare on Elm Street so I can have a long discussion like you got to have with Godzilla. I'm just taking over like half the interview. Oops. (laughs) And join us next week when we're joined by Vicky from Friday the 13th Part 2, the lovely Lauren Marie Taylor. And make sure to follow us online at High on Horror 420 and that's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can always email us at HighOnHorror420 at gmail.com. And make sure to go to our website, just HighOnHorror.com, and sign up for the newsletter, and that way you'll get an email when all of our new episodes are released and upcoming guests we have. And I think that'll about wrap her up. Catch you later. Bye, everybody.